that talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in Welcome back to the big Wednesday Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com, Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means on furlough this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Busy, busy pod, two hours plus. You know how we do it, and this is what we're going to do this Wednesday. We are going to start off with rapid-fire questions. You guys like the rapid-fire? We have eight or nine of those. Nathan and I are going to buzz through those from our loyal tech subscribers. Then I have a half-an-hour interview that I did with Gene Smith, the Ohio State Athletic Director, and we told you on the Tuesday podcast how we're going to handle uh, our discussions around the Black Lives Matter issue and how that relates to Ohio State football. That's what I talked about with Gene. That's a half-an-hour interview. That's going to be the second segment of this pod. Half an hour. Really good stuff, concrete stuff about how Ohio State is handling this, will handle it, what Gene Smith uh, thinks about where the Ohio State Athletic Department is, where their athletes are, where their fans are. Just a really interesting discussion with the guy who really matters um, in this situation because he happens to be one of the most powerful um, African-American people in college athletics, and he runs the Ohio State Athletic Department. So really good discussion there. And then we're going to come back and dig into kind of the heart of what this podcast is, which is three great questions from tech subscribers about the Big Ten. One is, which Big Ten fan base should be the most discouraged about the state of its program? Great answers. Nathan and I will dig in on that. The second is, who will be the next Big Ten team to beat Ohio State? Great answers on that. And a particular game really crystallized that I'm very intrigued to talk to Nathan about, about the next Big Ten game that Ohio State might lose. And then the last thing was, who's the, the team in the Big Ten and around the country that you wish could be could rise up and be a playoff contender? Nathan and I will give our answers to that. Really good stuff. Nathan, when you hear the menu, woo, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Are you excited for this big, hearty Buckeye Talk meal? I am. I think there's going to be some surprising answers probably uh, from our from our readership, but also maybe from ourselves. Ooh, Nathan with a little tease. He's going to bring it. Um, but here's what we're going to do first. I'm getting my stopwatch out. We're going to go through these. We have eight or nine questions. I sent Nathan eight. Uh, Nathan, I might add one because uh, I think it's kind of funny and it's it's one that you'll be able to uh, to handle easily. Um, so let me get the stopwatch out. We're going to try to do five minutes per discussion. We appreciate all of our tech subscribers participating and help us shape this pod. If you want to do that, if you want to be a uncredited, unpaid co-producer of a podcast, <laughs> pay us for us to steal your ideas. Is If there is someone from the company listening, is that a good way to attract tech subscribers? You can send me an email on that. We love our tech subscribers. We value them. If you want to join in, try it. See if you like it. 614. 350-3315. Send a text to that. You'll get an easy link to sign up. 14-day free trial. If you don't like it, bag it. If you do like it, four bucks a month after that. Here we go. Nathan Fields. I got Nathan Fields. You know what I get confused? Justin Fields is the quarterback. You're Nathan Baird. Nathan Fillion is a famous person. So that was the first time I ever called you Nathan Fields. But it would make sense to me if your name was Nathan Fields. That's a, that's a person's name, right? Uh, yeah, and I mean, then there's just obviously the athletic resemblance between myself and Justin. I, I was, guess it gets confusing. 
I would say you are a perfect mix of Justin Fields and Nathan Fillion. <laughs> if I were describing you, they're like, what is this Nathan Baird guy? What's, kind of, what's he going to look like? I'd say, well, he's got to. Anyway, all right, stopwatch. See, we have a stopwatch to prevent us from having a 12-minute conversation about how much you look like Nathan Fillion. Here we go. From the 361, how much more upside does Justin Fields have? Is it enough upside to carry an inexperienced receiver core early on? I have visions of Heisman season Troy Smith, who was so calm that entire season until the end. Others have suggested Cam Newton at Auburn. So how much upside is a little different than like comparisons? We've done a lot of comparisons. Sometimes it's hard to do that. But Nathan, we know what we saw from Justin Fields. Whoever he's like, we know what we saw. I don't know if you want to put a, a percentage on it, a number on it, or if you just want to characterize it in, with your delicious words, how much upside's out there for this guy? So I think there is a statistical upside that he hasn't reached yet. As great as he was last season, the most impressive thing last year was the efficiency and, and the touchdown to, to interception ratio being a part of that. I think as his targets or his, his attempts grow this season – there's definitely a statistical upside in terms of just the counting stats, as we talked about before. I also think, though, that there is an upside in terms of just him as a quarterback, because remember, last year he was in the first year as a starter, first year where he was even playing, expected to play regularly, where he wasn't just a um, a, a, a single, what am I looking for, like a package option as a quarterback. And he was new to the offense still relatively. I mean, especially at the start of the year, he was very still kind of green in Ryan Day's system and what they wanted to do. So I think that's where maybe I still see the biggest upside with him is just what is ahead of him now with another year of familiarity with this offense, another year of familiarity with this team, and just another year of familiarity being a college quarterback. I think that's where I still see the most upside for him as much as his decision-making was – kind of unquestionably pretty strong last year, I think you're going to, you could maybe see something else. Now I have pushed back on the Cam Newton comparison because I just don't see him running for anywhere near the kind of production that Cam Newton ran for. That was an offense that was absolutely geared for Cam Newton to be Cam Newton. And I think this offense is always is geared for a quarterback to put up good numbers, but it's the quarterback is expected to do different things. So I think, I would characterize Justin Fields' upside in how dangerous he can feel. And I think there's a lot out there. And I think it comes from familiarity with the offense. As you said, Nathan, I mean, the guy just showed up last year and did what he did. Um, Confidence. Just knowing exactly who he is as a quarterback, how this offense works. I think it's possible that, There's a ton of upside there, and I'll go back to sort of what I always said about Justin Fields, and we know we all had a lot of fun with my incorrect 9-3 and comparison, uh, my 9-3 and prediction for Ohio State last season, and my questions about Justin Fields, but my whole thing with Justin Fields was I'm expecting bumps in his first year here, but wait until year two, and his first year was better than I ever expected, but I'm still very much on wait until year two. I felt like just the little dose that we experienced as Ohio State reporters, that you guys experienced as Ohio State fans, the firsthand dose of Deshaun Watson that we all got in 2016, 
and not just in the game, but covering him that week, getting a feel for what he meant to that Clemson program, what kind of leader he was, what kind of guy he was. It felt like he Deshaun Watson, even though he didn't win the Heisman that year, like held college football in his hands. He was in total control of everything. And there was some stuff about, oh, he throw too many interceptions. I loved the whole vibe around Deshaun Watson because he was simultaneously in total control and willing to take risks. And that's where I think Justin Fields could get with his upside. I think it's possible that Justin Fields could bring to – I feel like I'm taking Stephen Means' corner here. It's like, I don't know, what's his upside? Could he throw 80 touchdowns? Like, it's not statistical to me. It's the idea – I think it's possible that Ohio State fans and, and college football opponents could feel like when Justin Fields takes the field, he's unstoppable. Because I think it's possible that – this season, what he could bring together. And last year, he wasn't that. I do think, Nathan, efficient, is, I think, is the best word to describe him last year, right? That's the word you used. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I, I, to me, last year was not – there weren't that many oppor- occurrences where I thought he just, like, took over a game by himself. And I do think that that's something that could be very much in play this year. It's going to feel that way. Uh, I think especially against some of these teams early in the season. you got to remember last year, even as impressive as he looked – early in the year, he was still working out the kinks, still learning an offense and still developing rapport with his teammates, whether that was the offensive line, whether that was the receiving core, a whole nother year with all those guys. I know we're bringing in some new receivers, but really a whole nother year with all those guys. And the other thing that I had on my list, I didn't mention it before was just that, that concept of him, the, the leadership upside that he probably has and just sort of the charisma upside that I think he has, because we got a glimpse of it, what he meant to the team and, and how he kind of, became a part of the program as a sophomore, his first year with the team. But I think everybody's eyes were kind of getting opened along the way. And I think that included the players on the team. I think there were things that he had to kind of prove along the way, boxes he had to check along the way. Now he comes into the second season. He's a Heisman Trophy finalist. He's been a finalist for numerous other awards. He's the Big Ten Offensive Player of the Year coming back, 41 to 3. I mean, he just has all of these things that kind of expand his aura a little bit, I think, coming into this next year. And that's not to say that he's above those guys. He doesn't carry himself that way from what we've seen and what anybody else talks about him. But I think it's just the way that – it's not so much his confidence. I think it's the confidence of the rest of the program that grows around him. And I think maybe this is what might differentiate him from Trevor Lawrence. It feels like to me it makes sense that Justin Fields might have more upside that we haven't seen compared to Trevor Lawrence just because Trevor Lawrence has had basically two years – doing this and Trevor Lawrence now the other part of that is Trevor Lawrence has gone through the dip right Trevor Lawrence takes over as a true freshman wins the national title has a little bit of a dip at the beginning of last year where everybody's questioning him he's not a Heisman finalist and it's like oh yeah Trevor Lawrence is awesome so maybe Justin Fields will have will go through some part of that but I think it's possible that we may come out of the 2020 season thinking like hey remember when we thought Justin Fields 2019 season was good Oh my gosh, little did we know what was waiting in 2020, because I think he's got it all. I think he has the arm strength to make throws down the field. He's absolutely proven he has the accuracy. He absolutely has the calm and the poise. He does not get rattled. I think your point, Nathan, is an important one that needs to be brought up. I think he can take another step as a leader just because he's more comfortable in the program. And then he can move, and he's big, and he's physical, and he's fast, and like... 
and he has a, he has a quarterback, a, a, a head coach who is quarterback friendly. He just gets everything. I thought I I was impressed with how quickly he picked everything up last year. I just never expect that from a new quarterback. I don't expect you ever to totally grasp the system. And and Justin Fields looked in total control. I think the upside is like a devastatingly dangerous yet completely in control game changer who is as good as anybody we've ever seen do this at the college football level. Like I think that's the upside and it's not impossible that he's going to get there. But I just really think it like if we tried to put this and I'm okay going more than five minutes on this. Cause it's like, we're talking, what are we talking about? How good the quarterback might be of the team you think is going to win the national title with the team you love. This is really important. If you had to put a percentage on how good, okay, if, if, if how good you think Justin Fields can be, the maximum he can be as a Buckeye this year, that's 100, okay. Where are we? So if that's 100%, what percent do you think we've seen so far if what I described, devastatingly dangerous, has every part of it, physically, mentally, emotionally, he's got it all, that's the 100. Where are we on that scale? That's a fantastic question. I I, I, would... I will I'll go first because I don't want to okay. dump it on you. I think maybe we've seen like sixty percent, right? Now I'm not gonna say we've only seen twenty percent of what he can do because he was great last year, but I I don't think we've seen eighty five percent of how good Justin Fields could be. I think it's possible we've seen like sixty or sixty five percent, which means there's a lot left. I, you know, I was probably gonna guess higher than that. I see what you're saying. I was gonna maybe guess more like. 80, 85, as far as a college football player, because it's not, because as much as what I just said was true, I, I think we also sometimes forget he did have the freshman year at Georgia, a major program, did play in big games, got his feet wet in those situations. So it wasn't like he was a complete spring chicken going into last season, as far as just playing college football. Um, and he did have the other the other reason I would say that maybe we've seen that high of a percentage from him so far is that he had just such an incredible season last year. I mean, if, if you start talking about another 40% on top of what he did last year, um, I mean, you're, I mean, isn't that like Joe Burrow territory? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, to me, that's like ripping throws over the middle. That is like almost every time making the right decision on whether to take off and run or whether to stay in the pocket. That is, is, being confident enough to not just throw the ball away and and break break a sack and get out on the move and make throws on the run. That's maybe really running some up tempo stuff and getting up to the line and having some freedom, you know, to run the offense a little bit more himself. Um, you know, I, to me, a lot of that is just being absolutely devastating as a runner at the most opportune times for the offense and the most inopportune times for the defense. Um, I mean, he was incredibly accurate last year, but I also think it, it, it's, it's like one of those like, hey, it looks like he's going to take off and run. Look out. He's going to run for 15 yards. Oh, no, wait. He stopped right at the line of scrimmage and threw the ball 60 yards to the other side of the field to Chris Olave, who broke free. And nobody saw that play coming. Like, I just think. I mean, it's crazy, right? We're talking upside. So I'm allowed I'm allowed to go bonkers. But this guy's yeah. special. This guy is special. And Troy had it, right? That 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 intangible thing that drew people to him. Troy Smith had that. Deshaun Watson had that. Thinking about the Browns, I came away from covering Deshaun Watson for a week and thought, 
Whatever that guy has, I would want that in my locker room as an NFL team. I think your point is I think we can see more of that from Justin. He's just a little bit more low-key, but I think that could come along. And he's just he just is a rare talent in that I think he checks almost every box. And yeah, I think there I think you're right. I think there is some upside on just his um his kind of outward presence, his vocal presence. I think that we'll definitely probably see more of that in the season ahead. And I think as much as I said that the statistical upside is there with, with additional attempts, I mean, that also means that's more exposure to pressure and contact and turnovers and handling more decisions. And so I still think there's upside there too, just kind of that kind of presence, that on-field presence, having to, to handle, because they had that, that running game was a foundation last year. You had a phenomenal defense. It was a foundation last year. More of this is on his shoulders this coming season. There's a little bit more pressure, I think, on him this coming season to, to, to carry things, but he should also be in position to, to do that. And again, I, I don't think there's 40% more statistically, right, that I don't think he's going to throw 90 mm-hmm. touchdown passes. But to me, it's that combination. The best combination for a quarterback is when you are completely in control yet totally dangerous at every moment. And I think Troy in his Heisman season got there in a lot of ways that the Troy that we saw that, that ran around and broke, broke tackles and ran a lot in 04 ran less than 05, but still made some crazy plays. And 06 was just like in complete control, but Troy's in terms of athleticism and size and arm strength and stuff, Justin is just a cut above Troy. So it's sort of a lot of those Troy intangibles just in a turbo size, supersized next level kind of physical presence that I think, that I think Justin obviously has shown already. Um, most players don't get to 100. That's the kind of the whole point. Most players don't get to that magical, that, that speculative 100 that we're talking about. I think that's a very – Smith might have been one of them. Burrow might have been one of them last season. So your, your guess on 60-65 might be right because that might get him to 90 this coming season, which would still be a phenomenal season, but not to that kind of mythical 100 status. Right. Right, and that's and guys grow, but but again, it feels like now we've talked about all this stuff. We're talking about all the same stuff again and again. You guys know that by now, right? There's only like seven things we think about Ohio State football. We just package them differently every week. He has a really good Ryan Day is a really good guy, which is why Justin Fields came here. A really good guy to help Justin Fields get as close to that hundred as possible, which is a really important part of this too. All right, question number two. That was long, but that was good. Question number two from the eight one six. Corey Dennis, the new Ohio State quarterbacks coach, is in a lose-lose situation. If the passing game looks good this year, it will get credited to Ryan Day and Justin Fields. If it looks bad, it will be attributed to Corey Dennis. What will it take for Dennis to prove the doubters, cough, cough, Doug, wrong? What will it take, Nathan Baird? Well, first of all, I think I – I don't know if I agree with the premise that Corey Dennis gets to blame if the passing game doesn't look good next season. Oh, I might agree with that, because who else would you blame? Ryan Day and Justin Fields have already done well, right? We've seen them be good. We haven't really seen Corey Dennis be good because he hasn't been a full-time assistant before. I think that might be very natural if it's like, what's wrong with Justin Fields? Oh, it's quarter- his quarterback's coach. That That's probably where I'm going, <laughs> just to be honest. Well, I think you probably <laughs> – you may already have half that column written, but <laughs> – that might have been your furlough project, but uh, I guess I just the way I see it because we are have already seen what Fields and Day can do together. I don't know that that relationship changes substantially going into 2020. Maybe I'm wrong, but I still think of of you know I don't know how much quarterback coaching in a broader sense that, the, that Justin Fields is going to need. I would still think his performance 
stands on its own. And I still think Ryan Day is going to have considerable input. My, my, I guess what I'm saying is my focus, I don't know that there's a lot for Corey Dennis to prove in 2020. My focus on Corey Dennis is already kind of shifted ahead to 2021. That's when he gets to start proving his worth as a quarterback's coach to me. Because if, if something were to happen in 2020 where one of those two true freshmen or Gunnar Hoke gets thrown out there and has to go out and try to win a game for Ohio State, I don't know how much expectation gets put on Corey Dennis to have them ready to do that this year, depending on the opponent. You know what I mean? If one of those guys has to go out and beat Penn state by him as, as a starting quarterback, that's maybe a tough thing. Now, when you start looking ahead to 2021 though, that's where I feel like Corey Dennis has to have put one of these three guys, whether it's Stroud Miller or McCord coming in, one of those three guys has to be ready to take over from day one and lead a team with playoff aspirations. I still think that's a really high bar to set, but that's what I'm judging him on. I think I completely agree. I think I agree with the premise of the question that 2020 is a lose-lose for Corey Dennis because I subscribe to both things that this, the texter from the 816 said. If they're good, it's if they throw it well, it's Fields and Day. If there's some problem with the passing game, we'll go to Dennis. But I completely agree. I don't need to restate the whole thing. To me, it's all about how he develops the next generation of Ohio State quarterbacks. Because Ryan Day is the head coach. Ryan Day cannot be in the quarterback's room teaching C.J. Stroud, Jack Miller, and Kyle McCord how to be college football quarterbacks. That's, he just does not have time to do that on a daily basis. That is Corey Dennis's job. And so – that's when we'll know. That's when we'll know. He won't get credit for this year. He just won't. Right or wrong, I'm sure Ryan Day and Justin Fields will give him credit. But Justin Fields is Ryan Day's guy. Ryan Day was never Justin Fields' quarterback's coach because Ryan Day was already the head coach. But Justin Fields came for Ryan Day. Ryan Day went and got him. So Corey Dennis, even though he has a great relationship with Justin Fields, just never gonna, he's never going to get the credit for Fields' success. But this is a really important job ahead. I mean, it's probably the – which is why I'm all wound up about having a, a young first-time assistant in charge of that room. I mean, not to get off topic, Nathan, but I think the, mo- the most important thing for the future of Ohio State football is, develop- is, is developing these, those three young quarterbacks and figuring out who the starter's going to be. I mean, that's obvious, but, like, that's in Corey Dennis's hands. So he's going to get either credit or blame – and I think justly so. And, and again, if like Kyle McCord or CJ Stroud or Jack Miller is great while they're young, I will line up and be the first to raise my hand and say, good job, Corey Dennis. That's I mean, so important. Year, it's so important. Yeah. Last year in those, you know, 72 to five games or 48 to nothing at halftime games or whatever, um, we were really busy in the second half writing our things. So we didn't have to be up till 3 a.m. Because what was happening on the field in the second halves of those games was not especially important. I think it's going to be critically important for us to pay attention to those things when they happen in 2020. Because we're going to see C.J. Stroud and Jack Miller on the football field playing. And again, it's going to be, they're going to be in their infancy as college football quarterbacks. But that's where we're going to start to see the future of the program, the foundation of the program. You know, Ryan Day, I asked him about it a couple months ago when we talked to him right after the draft. You know, where do, where does developing elite quarterback talent fit into and in, in, you know first round kind of NFL draft talent fit into your vision of the program? And he said it's absolutely important. That's what and and this is the next step of that. They have to find which of these three guys that is, or multiple of these three guys potentially that is, and develop those guys and use them to 
lift this program and, and keep this program where it's wanting to go. Question number three from the 813. How disappointed would you guys be if the Oregon game got canceled purely in the sense that you wouldn't get to experience Eugene? Nathan, will you be sad? I will be bummed because this we don't get a lot of opportunities to see college football outside of the Big Ten. Like the vast majority of what we see is Big Ten. Like we go on the Big Ten road trips. We go to Indianapolis for the Big Ten championship game. But it's really only, what, once every couple years that you get a road trip like this during the regular season. So, yeah, it's a long way. And, yeah, the, the time is all messed up. And it, it creates kind of a, a fast turnaround for us from a work standpoint for the next week or whatever. But I, I've never been to Oregon never been to the state, never been to that stadium. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I think it would be, even in a compromised situation, I think it would be a fun football environment. I think it'd be a hell of a game too. That's where I think I'm, we all miss out the most. And when I say we, I just mean college football in general misses out the most if games like this can't happen in 2020 because that's already one of the most looked forward to games on the entire schedule nationally. I think I've said before, I think Oregon is one of two states I've never been to. So, like, I've had this on the calendar for a while of, like, hey, I'll get to check off check off another state. Um, I love – I mean, one of the great things, it's one of the great perks of this job is getting to go to cool places to cover college football games. Um, going to Washington, going to USC, going to Miami, Florida, going to Texas. Uh, you know, it's been great. So, I would miss out on it. Um, I think it would be disappointing. We've heard from some fans on the tech subscription and stuff that, that plan to go to that game. There's some fans on the West Coast who had targeted that as an opportunity to see the Buckeyes in person. Um, uh, so, yeah, we'll miss it, but we'll get over it. Nathan, I, the two things I want to spin off of this, A, um, and, and I'm sure we can do some reporting on this. There's not a lot of point in doing a ton of reporting ahead of time. But what do you think they'll do, like, if this season's game gets canceled, but then next season's trip for Oregon to Ohio State stays on the schedule, how will they figure that out? Because they could add the Ohio State trip sometime out in the future, but they schedule so far in advance, and it have to be six or eight years from now probably. Or if they just bag it, then you somehow have to split the, the Ohio State money, I would be sure, because Oregon wouldn't say, well, we'll come to your place, but we don't get the return trip. Would they move it to a neutral site and split it that way? That's pure speculation on my part. Gene Smith was very clear on the idea of, on a conference call recently that like he has no interest in like trying to flip-flop the games because he wants that 2021 home game. So how do you think they – if it doesn't get played, then what? So I think there's a couple options. One you mentioned, which is is – punting it out into the future and the next time it looks like it would need to be a <clears throat> so th they have they have a 2027 game at boston college so they're probably not going to add another obviously power five road game that year and then there's two gaps 28 29 and then 2030 they're at georgia so i suppose in either 2028 or 29 you could try to fit in the the, the trip to oregon and balance it out that way but that obviously leaves oregon kind of holding the bag for revenues when Ohio State would then presumably get its full revenue for the gate in 2021. So I think the other option, I think you had even mentioned this once before, either in a conversation with us or maybe it's here on the pod, but just do you, um, do you get creative and like split the gate or something for 2021 and then do the same thing again in the future to even that out. So not, so one of the athletic departments doesn't have to take that hit in the short term. I could see something like that. I don't know what neutral site, 
would make a ton of sense. Um, although Ohio State travels so well that you could probably call, you could probably say like Seattle and call that a neutral site. I'm just throwing out there or San Francisco, call that a neutral site. And you would, it would, I mean, it, it clearly wouldn't fully be geographically a neutral site, but you could do something like that. I mean, and it's all, it's really about the money, right? It's like, oh, it's not yeah. fair. You get one game, we get one game. It's about the money and how you split the money. So I, the neutral site thing, I think, you know, Ohio State has not loved to do that. They did that with the TCU series. They turned a home and home into a one-time neutral site. So that was pretty recently that they did that. I don't know. It's, it's, it's in fact why, they, why, why there wasn't a huge non-conference game last season. I don't think they'd want to do that. I think it's more likely the thing that you said of like, you sort of figure out the financials, the return trip is six or seven or eight years off in the future. And you split the money now and split the money later so that Oregon doesn't get screwed. Cause I would guess, and it's a pure guess. I would guess that like, sorry, Oregon, your game got wiped, but Ohio state's home game goes on next year completely as normal. Like, I don't think Oregon would go for that. Like I, I, oh, I think North- Oregon said like, we're not coming then. That's not yeah, fair. I think they would have a legitimate beef at that point. That seems um, that seems like a tough thing to ask somebody to swallow because these games do mean a significant amount for everybody's bottom line. And the contract is a two-game contract, right? So it's not like well, it's like well, it's not like well, Oregon, you signed a come contract to come here. They have a deal for a home and home. So if part of that gets screwed up, then you can see well, the whole contract gets screwed up. So there might be something you have to do. Um, Again, they're going to have to figure that out. Gene Smith said they'd like to have this figured out by July. So, like, they have another month or so to maybe to figure out whether that gonna, game is going to be played or not. And, again, even if it's played but Oregon makes much less money because there aren't that many people in the stands, what does that mean? We will definitely ask Gene Smith about this. It's just there's only so much speculating you can do. Um, so and it's not can, something to ask now. And just quick, you can amend contracts too. You can amend – I've seen this happen before for basketball contracts where they change the date by one day or whatever. And you could – I suppose they could go in and just amend the contract to say the, this game will be played without fans or with small percentage of fans. So next year Ohio State will give Oregon an extra $100,000 to come to Columbus or something. They, they, can do, they can make those amendments to those contracts too. What if they just said, well, even next year, even if uh, COVID-19 is gone, no Ohio State fans can come either because that's just fair. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Cut off your nose to spite your helmet. Uh, From the 614, question four. We've seen so much evolution and revolution in offensive football over the past 20 years. What's the next big thing or big change that everyone starts copying? I have mine. Do you want me to start? Um, Sure. Mine are two things. One is I've been fascinated by, and people have written and talked about this for a while, like a two-quarterback system where you have two quarterbacks on the field. And we've seen a lot of these like almost like hybrid type guys, like a Taysom Hill kind of guys, like guys who were quarterbacks in college maybe and then become hybrid guys in the NFL. Even Baltimore, I think, is experimenting with Trace McSorley that, that way. So it's like what if you had like two versatile guys who can both throw it and run it and catch it and from snap to snap, you don't know, like, who's getting the ball. Like, there, there are offenses out there that are designed for that. I, I've kind of been waiting. It's a huge risk, obviously. It's like, well, why would Ohio State do it? I mean, it, to me, it's like the triple option. It's like, well, I don't know. Rutgers could try it. Although Rutgers can't even find one quarterback. They're going to get two. So, like, I, that's so off the beaten path and such a wrinkle. But 
I could absolutely seeing football get to the, some kind of point where it's, and it's not a two quarterback system where you alternate series or alternate snaps. It's that both the quarterbacks are on the field almost all the time. And you just don't know which guy's going to throw it from play to play. So I think, you know, there's some high schools and stuff. You could look it up. There's high schools that have experimented with this kind of thing. And I think it could work. The thing I think is more realistic is, and this is a little bit from the Browns because it's being talked about so much with Kevin Stefanski. Kevin Stefanski loves 12 personnel, which is two tight ends, sort of as your base offense. The Browns had David and Joku and they went out and signed Austin Hooper to to a huge deal. The highest paid tight end in the NFL. Plus they drafted a tight end. Um, the FAU kid that Ohio State played last year, because they're going to use tight ends. Baker Mayfield, you look at the stats, is really productive with two tight ends. So I think a world where it's like your base offense has two tight ends, and lots of schools do this all the time, but I don't know that anybody at a high level has it as their like base primary offense, that you have two tight ends on the field 70% of the time. But I think a world where you do that, you run a lot of play action off of it. Both those tight ends can catch and block. Um I could see it evolving to that. Not that it's like a Wisconsin or Iowa, like run heavy power kind of offensive set with two tight ends, but more that it's a throwing offense, but you're using the tight ends and not having three receivers on the field as much. So I think we could head there. So mine is, I think it's technically an offensive thing, but I guess someone could argue that it's special teams, but this has also come up through, the high schools, and there's been a lot of research about it. We got to stop punting so damn much. I don't understand how football coaches who exude toughness and this masculinity all the time, and as soon as they get out into a game and it's fourth and one at their opponent's 47, and they're down by two touchdowns in the third quarter, and they punt it. There's all sorts of research out there. I mean, this is not new research either, because when I was looking at this answer, it goes back to 2012. I saw 2011, some articles of how teams are simply punting too much. The game could swing in their favor if they went for it in those situations more often. So I, I guess that's tiptoeing the line of whether that's an offensive revolution or not. But I still, I still see it so often that it would feel like a revolution if you found more teams – simply saying we're not going to punt so often. Yes, when we're pinned, maybe we'll punt, but not in these like midfield situations. If it's like fourth and three at the 50-yard line, I think I don't know the exact numbers, but the numbers are out there as to where it's still advantageous for you to go for it, and it's, it's way more in the favor of going for it than punting in a lot of those situations. Now, I will say one thing that would, I guess, be a detractor to what I'm saying. I, I also read an article by Football Outsiders that said in order for this to really work, you'd have to have a team that bought into just never punting and you just go for it every single time. And that definitely seems like a bridge too far for any major college football coach. But I sure as heck like to see someone try. If that's what the numbers are saying, if there's mathematical evidence out there saying it, we, you know, we've seen other aspects of other sports trend in that direction where there was a way that people used to play basketball and there was a way that people used to uh, build their baseball lineups and numbers over time, proven numbers over time showed them that those were the incorrect ways to be doing that. There was a much more optimal way to do it. I think at some point you're going to see a major college football coach buy into the optimal way as terms of going for it on fourth down or punting, and they'll be kind of the trendsetter, and you'll see other people finally follow it after that when they have some success. I like your answer better. I think that's coming. I think somebody's going to do it. And in my football, unwritten football novel, in my head, one of the scenes – 
at like an important juncture. Maybe it's before the game, before the big game, the coach is telling his team how they're going to be aggressive and they're going to go for it. And to prove it, he like takes out a sledgehammer and breaks the punter's leg. And it's like, look, we don't even have a punter anymore. We're not punting. Wouldn't that be like an emotional moment? I, I thought maybe he could kill the punter, but I thought that would be – that's a little much. That's a, that's a little much. But just amazing. broke his leg. Like, we're going to go out there? <laughs> I don't know. Sounded good in my head. I think yours is really smart, and I actually think we'll get there in the next 10 years with at least some component of teams. I think but, it's going to be one team. This one guy is going to do it. It's probably going to be like a group of five. You're going to get somebody that just says, screw it, we're going for it, we're doing this. And then when they have like some kind of crazy success, I mean, this, this kind of got national attention when there was a, I can't remember where the guy is somewhere in the South of a football coach who started doing this, just never punting, like literally never punting. And the reason that like real sports and other people started coming doing stories on him wasn't because he was like crazy and it was a big failure. It's because they just started piling up wins and state championships and stuff. So I think it's eventually going to find its way up to, to college. And uh, I'm eager for that to happen. From the three, one, seven. What out-of-business fast food or retail chain do you miss the most? Mark me down for Racks and Chi-Chi's. Chi-Chi's is a good one. Nathan, I'm sure you have an answer to this. Uh, I've eaten it at Chi-Chi's one time. There was a Chi-Chi's over in Champagne, and I always thought of it as like this like uh, exotic place. <laughs> we didn't have anything like that where I was, and I got to eat there one time. They have fried, um, ice, now- fried ice cream, man. I imagine actually right now, I actually probably wouldn't like Chi-Chi's because I've had like authentic Mexican food. Like I hate like Don Pablo's and places like that. Like I want to have real Mexican that's food. That's when you were – that's back when you were just a, a, a little rural kid. Now you're a I food – I was literally hipster. a hayseed. Yeah, now, now I Now you're like, a food hipster and you, you would look down your nose at the wonders of Chi-Chi's. Well, when you move to Chicago and you live in neighborhoods where you can go to like five different places where it's people who were like living in Mexico a month ago and now they're making you your food, it changes your perspective on what Mexican food is. Um, so I said, and this is, okay, this is cheating a little bit, but hear me out. I said Hardee's. Now I know that Hardee's still exists. I can like but, walk to a Hardee's right now. What do you but, mean by this? I know, but listen to me because the same way that like, some of the same people that were in Jefferson Airplane were like eventually in Starship. They were not the same band. So the so the fact that they still anyone, call this thing Hardy. Anyone listening to this podcast under the age of fifty, Jefferson Starship. This is why Google was, was created. So was a band. They 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 sang. We built this city on rock. Well, Jefferson Starship was a completely that was like that was like a Airplane. that was like a middle version. That was like the pivot in Jefferson Airplane to Starship, I think. I'm not – I just know – In like the Jefferson, 70s. Yes, Jefferson Airplane was like a 60s psychedelic band, and Starship was like um, garbage pop from the 80s. And like Again, trans- anyway. just to be clear, Nathan's reference <laughs> is to a band that existed 40 years ago. Okay, go ahead. If people go, go, people go on YouTube, look up those two bands, I'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So – I'm just saying that what, if the, the you Hardy, do that, text us and tell us that you did that. If Nathan Baird exists, just made you Google Jefferson Starship. Hardee's now exists in name only. They kept the Hardee's name in the Midwest because people knew Hardee's, but it's really just Carl's Jr. now. It's a burger place. Back The Hardee's that I missed, I thought was an amazing restaurant, was when it was a roast beef place and a fried chicken place. They had great roast beef sandwiches. They had maybe, I know I'm going to take crap for this because you know I, I dare to say that Chick-fil-A might not be the greatest chicken sandwich of all time, but I think the best chicken sandwich of all time 
I've ever had was the one they used to have at Hardee's, the chicken filet sandwich at Hardee's, and they had great fried chicken. And I, I it was just a fantastic restaurant. And I don't, it, it didn't last because I think it was like too rural or too something. But uh, I miss it. That's what I wish still existed. So um, there are a couple of things that I, I think they're still around, but like they've pulled out of Ohio, which is like always fascinating to me. I, I would be like a fast food writer if that was a job. Like supply change and, and how you decide to expand and that kind of thing. I think Friendly's is no longer in Ohio. Um, that's like a great burger and ice cream joint that it, they, it's still, I used to go to it in my hometown in Pennsylvania when I was a kid. That's where you went, you know, after football games on Friday night. So they still exist in Pennsylvania. I think they're all gone from Ohio. There used to be one like outside Cleveland that I would stop at sometimes. I think they're gone. Um, Payway, which is the fast food version of PF Chang's pulled out of Ohio mm. about three or four years ago. It was like literally like our favorite fast casual place. My daughter cried. I cried when it left. We could not believe that it left. It's, and it exists like in Arizona. They have one in the Vegas airport. They just don't have any in Ohio anymore. They left Ohio. But one of these that, that is actually dead now is a, a buffet restaurant called either Sweet Tomatoes or Soup Plantation. It's the same mm -hmm. thing, but it's two different names. And again, it was never in Ohio. I ate at it in Florida a lot. Um, when I used to cover baseball and I was there for spring training, I ate a lot of sweet tomatoes. And then we would try to make a point of stopping there when we would go to Disney World. And it's dead. COVID-19 killed it. And, and for anybody who likes like buffet restaurants, like a Golden Corral or a hometown buffet or like a sweet, sweet tomatoes was like salad bars and soup and bread. Like no, uh, no like big like entrees on the buffet, but just salad bar soup and bread. Great combination. I think a salad bar soup like buffet is a great restaurant. We always joked about trying to get one in Ohio. It's gone. So I'm very curious about the effect and what, what will become of, of buffet restaurants in this world, in the coronavirus world, because that's even a step beyond, okay, if, if restaurants are open and you can now eat inside, you can't go to the buffet. And, and like Sweet Tomatoes just said, like, we're out. We're done. We're shutting everything down. We're not done for COVID. We're done overall because we have no idea when buffets will come back. And I, you know, not, not every week, but I like a good buffet. Are you, are you worried about the fate of buffet restaurants, Nathan? A little bit, yeah. As much as I am accused of being some kind of a food snob at times uh, by our listeners, I, I enjoy like a dirty Chinese buffet. I enjoy an occasional Golden Corral, um, an, an, old, an old Ponderosa, which is another one that you don't find very Love much it. anymore. Um, yeah, I definitely, I'm going to miss those places because they, they had a role like, you know, and, and again, I always kind of lean towards places where I can go get real food too. Like, so that was actually one of those places where you can quickly go get real food because you don't have to wait in line. You just go in and sit down and they're like, Hey, bring me an iced tea. And you go up there and you're eating, um, well, well before you get your food at like a, a lot of places. So a lot of even like fast casual places sometimes. So yeah, I'm I'm gonna miss that. It's just it's it. it I, I put down uh, many a buffet in my early life, and I think our next generation is gonna be like, wait, there were restaurants where like you would go in and people just like sneeze and drool all over your food, and then you guys ate it, and you're like, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, no, God makes me pine for it. Oh, the good old days from the six one four from our friends Josh and Legion Mustachio. This is a question from Legion. Fine young man. He wants to know, are you ever afraid that Michigan players will listen to Buckeye talk and may get mad and try to beat you up? Josh, his dad, 
said, I told him that's not how it works. He said, Dad, football players are big, and how do you know that they are not scared? Meaning, are Nathan and Steve and I scared? Thanks, as always, Josh Mustachio. Nathan, in general, whether have you ever been in fear of getting beaten up for something you have said or written? Um, not by an athlete. By an athlete's mom? <laughs> there, were, there were a couple of times, and it wasn't even necessarily things that I wrote. It was the way we covered something or the fact that we were reporting on something in the first place that drew the ire of a person or a, a small group of people. So there, and I don't know that I ever felt like I was going to get beat up, but there was definitely a, a heightened air of tension, at least for a brief period of time. But no, I think most college football uh, players probably don't read what we write anyway. And even if they did, I don't, I, it's a very, 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 very small minority of the population that would immediately go to, I need to go pound that guy. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's, it's very easy to forget when you just sit in your basement and talk into a microphone or sit in your basement or on your porch and type into a computer that people read it and listen to it. So I have thought sometimes, like, if Alex Hornerbrook ever came up to me and said, like, why do you call me Noodle Arm? And I'd be like, well, actually, it was Landis. Go get him. He's over there. But, like, you know, like, you know, like, that would be a thing. I, I don't know that I would apologize. I'd probably say, like, because you are a Noodle Arm? Sorry? So, um you know, and I've told my stories before of when I was glib and it came back and bit me in the butt and I probably wasn't fair to people and got called out for it. But it always amazes me. Again, I think I've told the story that like off the spring game one year, I wrote that I think um, Dwayne Haskins, Joe Burrow and Tate Martell might be like three of the best six quarterbacks in the Big Ten or something. And like Brian Ferentz, the Iowa offensive coordinator, like somehow saw it and got mad and like stood up on behalf of Nate Stanley. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, Brian Ferentz, like, man, but also, like, I don't think Nate Stanley is very good. So, like, you know, it's all good. Um, but I do, I do know, like, Paul Hoynes, our veteran, tremendous future Hall of Fame uh, baseball writer for Cleveland.com, definitely has stories of, like, I don't know if he ever actually got in a fight, like, in the Indians clubhouse, but, like, a player wanting to fight him and perhaps like the player and Hoinsey being like held back or something. Like I think when you're a baseball writer, that kind of thing happens. Cause it's like, you're there every day. It's 162 games. You're just hanging around for hours in the locker room. And if you write like a guy stinks and then you go in the locker room the next day, the guy's right there. And he might be like, Hey, you said I stink. Um, I think it's much less likely that Michigan players would beat us up. I know Bill Livingston, our former Cleveland Plain Dealer columnist loved. I've heard. I heard the stories. Livy, if he told a story once, he told it a hundred times, um, which I'm always trying to be aware of as I creep more toward that status. If you guys hear a story from me, I'm going to say three times is okay. If on this podcast you reach the point where it's the fourth time you've heard me tell a story, please text me or tweet me or email me and destroy me, because then I've become one of those guys. But he always said uh, there was a reliever named uh, Hector Camacho for the Indians. Um, and he wrote some column where he called him like uh, Hector, Hector on fire or something. Instead of Camacho, he wrote like, like, like 
flame or something for his name in a column every time to imply that like he got lit up and and um i don't know like you said i guess it was an amusing thing to write in the 80s and uh like he wanted to kill bill (laughs) i think that guy wanted like kill bill livingston the next day and like had to be held back um because he was being glib and personal and you know whatever so baseball is a good place for reporters to get beaten up college football not as much. It doesn't mean that I might not get beaten up one day. And if I do, I'll probably deserve it. But at the moment, Legion, to answer your question, we're not that scared that it's going to happen, right? We're not, we're not that scared, Nathan, are we? No, I'm not overly concerned that um, I'll soon meet my demise Okay. at the hands of a college football player. Correct. Anyway. All right, next rapid-fire question, uh, rule change question. Nathan, do you have a good answer for this one? Because I don't. Uh, I'm going to lean on you for this, I hope. I, yeah, I don't have a great one. There are a couple of things that I, I I thought, but there's nothing I feel that passionate about. I All think right, uh, well, it's from the, from the 601, if you could add one rule in college football, what would it be? I basically said the, the goofy thing where if you funnel the ball out of the end zone, it's change of possession and a touchback for the other team. That seems like a, I, I do kind of agree that that's a pretty significant penalty potentially for what may or may not be something the defense actually did correctly or that the offense did incorrectly um, in an egregious way. So, but I, again, I'm not, I'm not going to carry a torch for it. Yeah. I'd be curious how we could open that up, you know, to tech subscribers if they want to send us something at, Sign up at 614-350-3315. Like, I'd be curious if, if there's something that people do carry a torch for. Because actually, I was trying to think about it. Like, I think a lot of the – some of the college football rules, I think, are pretty good. You know, like, I hate in the NFL that pass interference is to the spot. You know, that you throw a 60-yard pass and, you know, it's underthrown and the receiver's trying to come back for the ball and you get the ball at the spot. And college football is only 15 yards. I think that's much better, right? Isn't that the rule? Right. Right, that's the rule. Correct. Isn't it? Right, it's not a spot foul. Right. That's much better. If I was, if this was an NFL question, I'd say change pass interference. I actually think, like I've come, I don't know if I loved it at the start. I think the college football overtime stuff is pretty good. I think it's better than the NFL. Probably, it's more exciting. You know, I think it does test the offense and the defense. You know, I know you take the kicking game out of it, but it's you know I, the NFL's tried to rejigger stuff because you don't want to make it the first score. So if you only get a field goal, it ends up kind of screwy. I like overtime. Do you like the current overtime setup? You know, I'm actually someone who doesn't really mind ties that much. I'm probably in the minority there. Wow. I actually think there's something to be said for just like, hey, two teams went out and they bashed heads, and that's how it came out. You'd have to change it for the postseason, you know, conference championship games, I suppose, and definitely for the playoff. But I'm not that – I've never been that much against ties. I don't think they're really? that terrible. So, But having said that, I do think – I have always had problems with the NFL overtime, especially back when it was just only one team might get the ball. Um, I, I think they've done a good job progressing, but I, I do like the college overtime making both sides. It, it, I guess it does take special teams out of it to some extent, especially once you get past the first two overtimes. So that's a little bit unfortunate, but I don't also don't know if I think the game of that magnitude, once you get that deep into it, I don't know that it should come down to a kicker. Yeah, right. And you still, you know, yeah. You Across still come down to a field goal, but yeah. Um, Nathan likes ties is I'm trying to figure out what that says about you as a person. I would rather, I mean, especially as, you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to write a tie. 
I'll tell you that. If you're okay walking out, you want to write the game story? You write our game stories. You want to write the game story for, like, Ohio State and Iowa played an exciting game that ended in a 27-27 tie. Well, again, every game now has such consequence for the playoff, for everything else. I don't know that a lot changes. I think a tie is is often, depending on the context, going to be considered a loss in some ways, right? Like, if if, uh, if Ohio State ties with um, – Illinois going into the Michigan game, that's kind of the same thing as losing that game in a lot of ways and the ramifications it might have on your season. But it it gets more complicated now that you have playoff advancement. You almost, now that there is a playoff system, you almost really can't have ties, right? Like it would, it would create a real, as hard as it is sometimes to equate one team schedule to another, when you start factoring in who they beat and who they tied and who they lost to, I think it gets really complicated. And I will say, especially for a team like Ohio State that is a favorite in almost every game, like to me, Ohio State, if they're playing a team that's equal to them, I really don't want to see a tie. But in a situation like that where it's like, okay, Illinois ties Ohio State, it feels like a loss for Ohio State. And for Illinois, it's like, do you storm the field for a tie? Like you're excited, but you don't really get the excitement of the win. I just feels like you lessen both sides of them so much. Um, Pro tie. Pro tie Nathan Baird. You you also I'm not I'm not I'm not anti tie. You're not anti tie. You will wear a tie. Do you like Thai food? I love Thai food. Yeah. All right. So that will lead us into this, which is one of the questions. The only question I didn't send you ahead of time from the four four zero. Why can I not get over Nathan's terrible Chick Fil A versus Wendy's chicken sandwich take? This texter is bedeviled by your love for the Wendy's spicy chicken sandwich over to Chick-fil-A. Is it because it's just so horribly wrong? Or is it because I feel so much sympathy for a person not being able to see, hear, feel, taste, or smell food? In all seriousness, I was a bit behind on the pods, but I enjoyed the fast food bracket. It was a nice change of pace. Any chance we will be able to get another fast food bracket or tournament, maybe a national sit-down chain restaurant bracket, which like I almost said I can't do a podcast today because I have to make my national <laughs> sit-down chain restaurant bracket. Um, first of all, is there any point in you trying to defend yourself against a person who enjoys Chick-fil-A, or have we covered that ground so much it's just not your thing and there's not much more to say? Yeah, I think people are pretty dug in on their pro or con Chick-fil-A. And again, I was only con Chick-fil-A compared to the other restaurants it was up against. I wasn't I don't buy the hype of Chick-fil-A, but I'm not like, I'll eat Chick-fil-A. And are you down for a chain restaurant bracket? I'm, I'm down for whatever restaurant bracket you want this to be. We can do, we can do chain restaurants. We can do um, Columbus area uh, regional specialty restaurants, whatever you want. I'm I, here for it. I will say this. I also had this epiphany when listening to you guys last week. And we do enjoy talking about food on this podcast. But if you are a bit of a food hipster, and I don't think that, again, I don't think that's a negative or a positive. I think it's that you like to go down to the restaurant around the corner. That's a local restaurant as opposed to a chain restaurant, which is fine. But it doesn't lend itself as much to like a national conversation because it's like, hey, there's a great Thai food restaurant next to Nathan's house. But unless you live next to Nathan, you can't go there. So if you're that, Steven last week got all excited about like a Mexican food truck that he went to. And he's like, I love their chicken quesadilla. 
And I guarantee the chicken quesadilla he gets is chicken and cheese and a tortilla. Nathan or Steven does not eat anything that you can't find on the kids menu at a restaurant. All he eats is like chicken tenders, burgers, a chicken quesadilla and pizza. Right. And I am not that much better. I love to talk about my plain hamburgers at McDonald's. My question is, why does anyone want to hear us talk about food? We're terrible at it. It's two people who eat like children and a hipster. Yeah, I it's rough. And I, I but I don't know. I don't, don't you think that that those three of us probably in the aggregate approximate the tastes of the listening audience? I don't know, man. I don't know. I that's what I wonder cuz I always thought that yes, we do. But then I don't know. I have not seen Stephen Means eat something that would not be on a kid's menu. And we haven't got, but it's like, when we're on the road, it's like, we went to like a, a restaurant one time, like a gastro pub or something. It's like, you got this and I got, I think you got a hamburger. Like, I don't, I don't. I mean, he not, literally won't eat the crust on the pizza. Yeah. So again, and, I, and I'm the last person to disparage anyone's picky eating because I am also a picky eater, but it just, again, it's the, I, I don't know. Maybe we're just so entertaining. It doesn't matter that our food takes are, are terrible. Um, but I did, I did rethink it, but I also am super excited to make a bracket, but this one will do, maybe I'll do the bracket or I'll help the, the textures can help me seed it or something, but I'm already thinking about whether, uh, Chili's is a one seat or not. Who am I kidding? Of course, Chili's is a one seat. Okay. Last question from the 614. I was personally very touched by the player driven video speaking to racial injustices in this country. And again, as most of you know, Ohio State, um, as all these Black Lives Matters protests broke out around the country, they did put a, a video together with lots of different players, some members of the coaching staff uh, on uh, speaking on that issue. The question from the 614, do you expect any national anthem protests to bleed into college athletics? How do you think the country would react? So we have promised on this podcast, we're not going to be glib. We're not going to, you know, talk about social justice and in the midst of all stuff. But this is a very particular question about do we think there might be national anthem protests in college football? So that's what we're going to address. And I will tell you coming up next is a half an hour interview with Gene Smith. And Gene Smith and I touch on this topic. Nathan, do you think we will see them in college football this season? I do think we'll see them in college football this season, although it is two months away. So a lot can change, I guess, in terms of the intensity in which people are actively still putting out protests and demonstrations two months from now. But there does seem to be a shift this time from the last time we discussed this subject nationally as a, as a collective society, it does seem to be institutionally, whether that's schools like Ohio state, whether that is an institution like the NFL and whether they're doing it because they really feel it or whether they're doing it because they feel like they've been pushed there. There does seem to be more acceptance of that as a legitimate I, I'm starting to worry about how I say things but a, a legitimate form of peaceful protest I will say to my understanding and knowledge when Colin Kaepernick first started kneeling 
Um, and there was some stuff about our other players going to start doing this. I don't, I don't know that Ohio State was like totally on board with that. Um, but I agree with you. I just think that I think things have changed. And I think the main thing is that there is a larger number of players who are united and vocally, outwardly united uh, in their opinions on this subject. And there is strength in numbers. And I think maybe if there were some players who felt like maybe they would want to do something like that in the past, I think maybe they were worried about the reaction. But I think I think you will see it, see it, and I don't think it will be sporadic. I think it might be almost normal on many many yes. players on many teams many times. And that you know, if it's something that people don't like, again, we've said we understand people have different opinions on this. It may just be a thing that is a thing. And it's just there and like it's not going to change. And whether people like it or not, the players are going to feel like they have the ability to do it if that's what they want to do and that nobody is going to stand in their way. So, again, that's why I think where we think it is right now. That's a very specific issue. And here's what's coming up next. A half an hour interview, me talking with Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith, one of the most high profile, most influential um, African-American athletic administrators in this country, former college football player, former college football assistant coach, athletic director at four different places. Um, we talk about what he's thought of what players have done so far as part of this movement. We talk about um, how he hires people at Ohio State, and Ohio State does have a lot of black administrators, but how do they go about that? Could they have more? Could they have more black assistant football coaches? Um, where he thinks these protests might go, how Ohio State will react to it, how he might deal with it if some fans or sponsors or donors don't agree with it. What will Gene Smith or what will the athletic department do about that? That's what we talk about. We don't talk about football. We don't talk about COVID. We talk about that for half an hour. That's what's coming up for the next half hour of Buckeye Talk. After that, we are going to come back and dig into several Big Ten issues. Next Big Ten team to beat Ohio State, most discouraged Big Ten fan base, and the Big Ten team you would like to see become a playoff contender. But first, this half-hour interview with Gene Smith. Thank you for listening to Buckeye Talk. Honored by the presence of Mr. Gene Smith joining Buckeye Talk Longtime Ohio State Athletic Director Gene, I do not know what it's like to cover college sports with any other athletic director. You're the only guy that I've ever had to work with, so I don't know. I, I, I'm worried sometime I'm going to go out into the world and have to deal with somebody else and be like, oh, man, this is what other people are like. You've <laughs> been doing this for a long time. Um, you got here in 2004. I got here in 2005. You're a Cleveland guy. I work for Cleveland.com. So, you know, I always appreciate your time, Gene, and thank you for joining us here on, on this. Um, we're talking. Thank you, Doug. I enjoy it. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. It's a pleasure working with you. I didn't know that. I'm the only one. That's amazing. Yeah. I think we can work together for a while longer, Doug. Yeah, well, I think <laughs> I, we'll see. You'll probably outlast me, I would imagine. So we'll see. <laughs> um, the, you have come out. Uh, you had a statement several days ago expressing your support, the athletic department's support for the Black Lives Matter movement. And we have seen how much the Ohio State football program has stepped forward um, with what's going on in the country. Their voices have been made heard, certainly on this issue. Were you surprised? Were you expecting it? When you saw that your student athletes 
and that some of your coaches and the people who were around Ohio State Athletics wanted to have their voices heard on this subject. What did you think of that initially? Well, I was I embraced it. You know, I thought it was a, a great idea uh, by our student athlete population, and uh, obviously it started with football. And I was so proud of them that they felt comfortable uh, that they could express their thoughts and feelings the way that they ultimately did, uh, which is what we try to promote. Um, and then uh, I got a call uh, at the very beginning of this from, from Chris Holtman uh, one morning, and he shared, uh, you know, he had this tweet he wanted to put out, and we talked about it and uh, went through it, and then he put his out, then Ryan called, and uh, um, we talked about his, and he he talked with Chris, and then he put his out, and then I put mine out a little bit later that day or the next morning, I forgot. Um, and then what we've done is, is just listen to our athletes. And uh, football was the first ones that ultimately contacted Coach Day, and they wanted to do something, and they asked him to be a part of it. And, and so um, that was really uh, refreshing. And uh, then our other sports popped in right behind that. Uh, there's a series of videos that percolated as a result of our, our other student athletes wanting to be engaged in. So uh, we've listened to them, tried to embrace uh, their desires and promote and help guide them along the way. Gene, I'm not going to ask you to speak specifically, obviously, on on any other athletic programs or what what happens at other universities. But you are in a not a unique situation, but a rare situation in that you are one of I think there's about maybe 12 to 15 percent of the athletic directors of, of SB, FBS programs are black. You are a college football athlete yourself. You have come at um, college sports from a variety of angles. To what degree do you feel that racism, or if not that word, maybe a lack of racial understanding or just a disconnect on some level, to what degree do you believe that exists in college athletics and maybe specifically in college football? And again, I know you can't speak for every program out there, but how much do you believe it's there? Well, I know it's there, uh, and you articulated it perfectly, Doug, because it falls in all those three categories as you as you share. Uh, the reality is, it's there. Um, for us to be naive and think that it doesn't exist uh, is being naive. Uh, when you have, you know, three co- three thousand colleges and universities with, you know, that support football and so in, in the different sports in some form or fashion, uh, to think that um, there's uh, disrespect, um, to think that there's racism, not racism, to think that there's not hate, you know, all those things that is there. It may be covert, it may not be in your face overtly, but it's there, and so. Um, you would hope that because of the experience that someone has through sport participation at the collegiate level, uh, attitudes change. And, uh, that's the beauty of sport, um, that you, you end up working with and playing with people from all walks of life, um, urban, rural, uh, different socioeconomic backgrounds, dual parents, single parent, different religions, different races, ethnicities, all those things exist uh, in sport. And so if someone comes in with those attitudes, uh, as you shared, you would hope that 
through their experiences, they change. And, uh, and those are ages, these are ages where change can occur. You know, the Ecclesian environment, um, higher education is that space where, in my view, uh, that you can help, uh, mold people, uh, in their thoughts and feelings and opinions, um, in, in a different direction. And so, uh, it, to me, it exists. Um, but I believe this is an environment where, uh, you can change those attitudes. There's some structural things that I want to get in with into with you, but there's also some some specifics just about how things are unfolding at Ohio State. We've seen what student athletes have done at Ohio State so far. Will there be any limits on how Ohio State athletes can express themselves on this issue? And in particular, if football players or basketball players want to, would they be permitted to kneel during the national anthem or would the athletic department have any kind of say of, of telling them or suggesting that they not do that? No, we, you know, we would not prohibit anything uh, that uh, is peaceful. Uh, so uh, like everything else uh, that we talk about with our student athletes around these issues, uh, we share with them uh, what they are considering uh, and its impact, uh, not just on them, uh, but the people around them. And so we would go through the conversations, uh, but ultimately uh, what they want to do as an individual uh, will support. And, and I've always shared with our athletes, share with our coaches and everyone, uh, our kids have rights too. And the reality is this is an environment of, of accountability, responsibility, and opportunity. And if you want to take advantage of an opportunity, uh, to do something, then you need to understand that you're ultimately responsible and accountable. And so whatever that is, uh, that's all you need to understand. Um, when I got into the NIL space, uh, whatever year that, that was, um, everybody was so concerned about it. And I'm like, wait a minute. You know, if a young person is going to accept that they're going to ultimately do a, a endorsement deal with a company, uh, they need to understand that responsibility. And so to me, um, it's a good thing because that means that they're going to have to change uh, or or at least stay on the, uh, on that trajectory where their values align with a particular company. Uh, their social media accounts align with a particular company. So uh, we just teach them all those things, Doug. So we don't put restrictions. We educate. We teach. I've talked about this on this podcast that we're you have to understand that people disagree on every issue and people disagree on this issue and that you are allowed to be a sports fan and be a football fan and everybody doesn't have to have the same opinion on everything. Um, But when we talk about on this podcast, we're going to talk about it because the Ohio State football team cares about it and players care about it and the staff cares about it and the administration cares about it. So we're going to talk about it. But there are going to be people who just to, to different degrees just disagree with some parts of this or maybe how some people are expressing it. Do you believe you will have any fans or donors or sponsors who disagree maybe with the expression uh, of how some athletes or coaches or parts of the administration may be supporting a cause? Could you, do you think you might see people not donate, pull sponsorship, 
turn back their season tickets because they, for instance, would disagree with kneeling if players do that? And how would the athletic department be prepared to handle that if there is some kind of response to what is going on now? Because again, we obviously just have to understand not everybody 100% agrees on anything. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, you go into these things and these issues with that understanding. And, um, and actually there's a, a lot of issues uh, that we deal with, a lot of decisions we make where we know uh, the diversity in our society in, in, in thought and opinion is always going to be there. That's the, you know, that's one of the challenges of a sport. Sport is not a situation where it's quick pro quo, uh, where you, you know, you, you walk into the stadium and you get a quantifiable item and you walk out. It's in motion. It's passion. Uh, so uh, whatever decisions we make, uh, ultimately people are going to have opinions about, including this one. Uh, so, but I don't, you know, we, you know, I never talk, think about those things, Doug. Uh, I've never thought about them and I never will. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, what's right? What aligns with our values? Um, you know, when, when Ryan and I and Chris talked about our tweets, whenever that was, and putting them out there, we knew that people uh, were going to uh, not support uh, our position. And um, we would get that feedback or not. Um, and so I, I, just, I just know that. But I told them, and I tell our student athletes and tell my teammates, my staff, you know, you, you stay true to our values. You stay true to who we are. Um, you pull up our website and you look at our values. Respect. Respect is there. And that was decided by our department by all the people who work in it, by student athletes, that that is a value we hold dear. And so um, if we believe that, uh, this issue is about respect. And, and so the reality is, um, you know, I, I haven't thought about those things, Doug. I really haven't. I'll deal with them when they come to us. And uh, uh, But I will stand on who we are and what our values are when we ultimately have to make decisions in reaction to someone else's behavior. And again, I think obviously you know where I'm coming from here, Gene, because for sure. instance, yeah. with, with what happened yeah. with the NFL and Colin Kaepernick, there was certainly a financial uh, component to how the NFL handled that in the past. And, and it seems like maybe things are changing with the NFL. But so what you're saying is you guys are going to do what you're going to do, what you believe is right in terms of fairness and respect. And, and you're going to do that. And then if people disagree and, express that monetarily or financially, then you'll just deal with those outcomes as, oh, as yeah. they happen. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So, and I get old, you may remember better than me, but the, uh, um, we had, um, doing black history month. Was it last year? I think it was last year. Um, our student athletes on the men's women's basketball team decided to have t-shirts with, um, Sayings and pictures or pictures of black um, people who had uh, accomplished something in a particular field. And um, those are people that didn't like that. And uh, it was, whether it was poet, poets or innovators or whatever, um, they were just paying tribute to our, our history. And, and there are people that didn't like that. Uh, but that's what our athletes wanted to do. Uh, it was Black History Month. Uh, it was a positive statement. 
um, you deal with it and you move on. And so um, that's how we'll, whatever comes at us in this space, that's how we'll deal with it. Gene, again, some of the structural things I wanted to ask you about. Ohio State, Michael Drake, um, the outgoing president, obviously is black. You're a black AD. You've had people like Martin Jarman, now the UCLA Athletic Director, Michelle Willis. You've, you've had at Ohio State and in the Ohio State Athletic Department, there have been people in positions of power um, who are black. And that is not – certainly, I'm sure if you did it statistically, Ohio State has, has done more with that than many athletic departments around the country. How do you feel that issue, having people of color in positions of power – that's not the primary focus of, of what people are talking about right, right now, but a lot of things that when you protest things, a lot of things people want to do is change the system. How do you think so far Ohio State has done in terms of that, in terms of having um, people of color, a diversity of people in positions of power? Where is Ohio State there in your mind? Yeah, I think uh, you, just, you just shared it. You know, uh, I think obviously – there's some high-profile positions where the university has done exceptionally well. And I think back to uh, when Alex Shoemate uh, was chair of our board. Uh, Drake was president. I was the athletic director. And I'll never forget it. We took a picture on the field when we were at Indiana in football. And, and um, um, I, I remember sharing that with Urban, and we were sitting there. He's like, oh, my God, I'm not so sure this exists anywhere else. And, and um, um, but I think it's done exceptionally well in some areas. Remember, we're a large institution. You know, we're, when, you, when you aggregate the faculty, staff, and, and students, we're over 100,000. We're bigger than a lot of cities, small towns. Um, so there's pockets within our university where we haven't done as well as we should. Uh, but there's areas like ours in athletics where we have done well. Uh, we've always had a, a diverse leadership team. We've always had diversity within our in our department and different uh, units in our department. Um, so, you know, most people don't know our compliance officer is black. Just that, you know, that's that's a different. And uh, so we have a, you know, we we promoted that within our institution, uh, uh, but I think certain areas have done better than others. I've I've wondered about this over the years. Um, Ten football assistant coaches currently three of them are black uh, I don't know that in my time that I would remember that Ohio State ever had more than a third of their assistant coaches um, who were black again this is a I think the latest numbers about 55 percent of FBS football rosters are, are comprised of black players my rough count about 70 percent of the Ohio State football scholarship players are African-American um, you guys have Tony Alford and uh, and Al Washington and Larry Johnson. Is three of ten assistant coaches who are black on a roster for when the roster is sixty to seventy percent black players? Is that good enough, or would you like to see Ohio State football make progress in terms of hiring more black assistant coaches? Oh yeah, you know the answer to that is always yes, but um, you know you always want to have more diversity uh, in your shop and. Um, so yeah, that's, that's always a, a goal. Uh, we're blessed, you know, to have, you know, the talents and skills uh, of Larry Johnson and, and, um, you know, I mean, I just, I wouldn't even begin to, as you know, Doug, it'd be so hard to really just 
putting to, to encapsulate, you know, what he brings to the table. Um, but you would hope that over time that number would grow. And, and I know uh, Ryan thinks about that as, as time as he went through his staffing um, and, and was thinking about that. Uh, but yeah, there's no question. Uh, all of us across the country, including us, uh, need to do a, a better job to try and increase those numbers. I think four black head coaches uh, in football in the Big Ten, which is actually, compared to a lot of other conferences, pretty good. Kevin Warren, the new commissioner uh, of the Big Ten, is black. Again, it, Gene, I, it's like I feel like I don't want to belabor the point, but again, the structures are where the power lies, and that's where things can really change. Um, your view from the inside of working your way up from being – a college football player to a college football assistant coach to becoming an athletic director at several places before landing at Ohio state and becoming one of the most influential athletic directors in the country. Obviously progress has been made as you have watched it. And as you look where it is now, do you, has the progress been slow? Has it been pretty good? I think one of the things we can get caught up in is progress is nice, but until you get to the point where it's fair, where it's, where it's just and fair. I mean, like saying, well, we're better. I mean, that's still not good enough. Where is college sports? Are you ever frustrated by it, right? Four out of 14 Big Ten football coaches. Again, that's better than some conferences, but it's still, you know, it's not even half. Your view, Gene, from where yeah. you were as a football player to now, what have you seen? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting because first and foremost, you you think about where you sit. So, you know, I became a full-time athletic director in uh, 85, 86, and I was 29 years old. And early on, uh, you remember this, Doug, it was called Division 1A and uh, before it became FBS. And there was Charles Harris at Arizona State, and then it was um, McKinley Boston, uh, who I think was at Rhode Island at the time, uh, and ultimately um, – the 90s, I think he went to Minnesota. Uh, but there weren't many of us then. And I look today, and I think the numbers actually at the FBS level is nine uh, black uh, athletic directors and out of 65. And uh, um, so I, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't call that progress. You know, I wouldn't say that, that we've significantly improved from two or three to nine. Uh, from the 80s to 2020. So I, I look at it relative to where I sit uh, in athletic administration. Now, there's significantly more diversity uh, in our, our units in, in academic affairs, compliance, and uh, marketing and development. It's, it's really improved. Uh, but in the seat, it hasn't. And it's the same thing with our head coaches, and in, in particularly in football. Basketball has always been better, uh, but uh, it's down. So there has to be more of a concerted effort uh, to try and and have um, uh, black people in leadership positions as head football coaches and basketball coaches. Um, I was looking at the Big East and basketball. I think they might have seven or eight uh, black head basketball coaches, which is astonishing. Uh, but the reality is we need to we need to do a better job there. Um, and, and hopefully um, over time it continues to grow. Ohio State has not had a blackhead football coach. You've hired two head coaches in your tenure. Did you can take that into consideration 
while you were hiring Urban Meyer and Ryan Day or, or how you've made a, a lot of hires in your time as a athletic director across multiple sports. Just how do you take that factor into consideration when you're hiring a head coach? Yeah, I do. And, and uh, look at the pool of candidates. And I think every AD does this based upon where they are and what they're looking for. And uh, But yes, definitely. Um, you know, if you, you always look at that. And, and certainly when I hired Urban, I looked at that. When I hired Ryan, I looked at that. And um, obviously unique situations with, with Urban being available and being from Ohio and then uh, Ryan obviously being here. Um, but in the open market, uh, had both of those been like open market searches, uh, may have been different. And so I definitely look at those things. And uh, same thing uh, when I hired Chris Holtman, same thing when I hired other coaches in other sports uh, where it makes sense. Uh, so uh, you definitely look at those things. Gene, um, I'll, I'll finish with this. Um, again, I've, I've written about this. I, to me, as a white sports writer, dealing with this from a sports standpoint, um, it, I, I'm interested in hearing what people directly involved in it, people like you and, and Ohio State football players and, and other people at the university, what they have to say about it. But I am, I am aware, we're all aware of the fact that they're just our football fans who love Ohio State, who just aren't interested in this topic and who might be turned off by this topic. And what I've hoped for them is, again, listen, whether you agree or disagree, listen, but don't, don't like – turn your back on a football team because you might disagree on it with on an off-field issue if for for you as the athletic director if you were talking to a white ohio state football fan who just doesn't agree with this for whatever reason what would be your message to them in terms of how they could maybe absorb this message and how they could go about being a fan of Ohio State sports and of the university and of the football team if they aren't entirely on board with this particular issue? It was about respecting other people's thoughts and opinions. You know, I, over my tenure, um, from the beginning of time to now, uh, I've had different conversations uh, with people who disagree with different decisions uh, that we've made. And, and we'd have a conversation and you would hope that that conversation, and it has been in my experiences, rational, reasonable, and prudent. And in the end, you agree to disagree. And, and that's, that's, uh, that's, that's how, that's what our, our environment should be about, that we respect each other's view. I might not like it. I might not agree with it, but you respect it. And, for me to judge uh, someone else based upon their experiences in life um, is not right. So I want to have that conversation. Uh, we, we discuss it and we may agree to disagree. Uh, but you have to choose what you want to support in life. And whether it be going to the theater, uh, whether it be going to the museum, whether it be going to the zoo, or whether it be going to a sporting event, it's up to you what you decide that you want to do uh, based upon uh, your own personal views. So I, I understand that, that that's life. Um, I would hope uh, that we wouldn't focus on that as much. You know, I, I have been in this conversation before and, and I, I would hope that we get to a point where that's not our focus. Our focus is on the other side. 
our focus is on the fact that this protest is worldwide. And you look at the crowds and it's full of young people and white people. And that's the hope that you should draw from it is that it's, it's, it's diverse in age and diverse in race and ethnicity. And that's what gives me hope. And I would hope that we would focus on that and less on, you know, this is what's going to happen with people who don't support you. Because there's the vast, vast, vast majority, it's being seen, is going to support it. And, and though that's where we need to shift our focus to. It's different than the Huff riots in Cleveland in the 60s. It's different than the Ferguson riots. It's different than the Rodney King riots. This is, this, this protest is different and we need to embrace that opportunity. So I, you know, I tend to kind of focus on that part, Doug. All right. And I'm going to end. I don't want to end on that. I want to end on this. You, I'm sure have some personal experiences with this, but in your position where you are at your stage in life, Gene, when you see young athletes, young black athletes who, who feel this, who live this, who have experienced this, who this, who have stories, who have feelings that they carry with them on a daily basis. They feel, you know, is something going to happen to me? Do I have to be nervous about this encounter? We understand, right? They're expressing right. that. What's it like for you as someone of a different generation who I'm sure when you were a young, a young black man, you had your own feelings about that. Just what is it like for you to watch this generation? the young black athletes at Ohio State, supported by many young white athletes. Just what's it like to watch them express themselves on this issue? Oh, it's beautiful. It is, you know, and, you know, because their experience that they're uh, sharing now is the same experience I had. You know, I can't remember how many times I was stopped while driving black. And, and from the 1970s when I first got my car and when I was working at IBM was probably the most because I was a salesman at IBM and I was driving around a lot in, in Indiana. And so the reality is, you know, as they're expressing their concern, um, it, it's personal for me because I, I understand it. And, and so, uh, but it's beautiful that they're expressing it. And I'm glad that our protests have moved to the pre peaceful demonstrations because I'm a, you know, uh, Elvidge Cleaver, Martin Luther King type of guy. And so, um, I just believe that, um, the, there's an opportunity to change because they are expressing it, right? So I, I, I paint for them because they, they have to feel the way they do when a police officer is in their environment. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like there's a chance for hope because they are talking about it. And they're, they're recommending things. That's the other part that's really beautiful. They're, they're recommending things. And so, um, those, those are the emotions that I have as I, I go through this process when I'm looking at our athletes. Gene Smith, Gene Smith, thank you so much for your time on this. Always appreciate, uh, your openness talking to us. Um, and, uh, certainly looking forward, fingers crossed, to a football season in the fall. We have plenty of other time opportunities to talk about that kind of stuff as we progress to this. But, um, Gene, thanks as always. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate you, buddy. Take care and stay safe. All right, back on Buckeye Talk. Thanks to Gene Smith for his time on that. And now we are digging into these Big Ten questions, Nathan. Um, I loved him. The, the texters really got excited about this. 
and it's texter questions that we then sent out to other texters. So again, if you want to be part of that, 614-350-3315, we'll start your 14-day free trial. Great one to start from the 505. Based on the last four or five years, which Big Ten team fan base right now should be the most discouraged with their team? I took all the votes on all these things, and I tallied them up. It took me forever, but I did it. Nathan, who do you think won the vote for most discouraged Big Ten fan base from our tech subscribers? So I did peak a little bit at the answers. I did not read back through all of them, but I did see some of the answers coming in. And there were a, there was a lot of support for Michigan, which is not the team I voted for. Michigan first with 36 votes. Who do you think is second? I think the team that I voted for would probably hopefully be second. And that's Nebraska. That is correct. Nebraska is second with 21 and they are the runaway winners. No other program got more than six votes. So again, Michigan 36, Nebraska 21. Every Big Ten program but three got at least one vote for most discouraged, including Ohio State got three votes. And we will go into wow. that a little bit. One was tongue-in-cheek. Two made a point. And I don't agree with the point, but I get the point they're making. The three that did not get votes are Maryland, um, because I think people think uh, – there are a couple things that crystallize the way these three questions, most discouraged – potential playoff contender, next team to beat Ohio State, they help crystallize because they're kind of connected what people are thinking about the Big Ten. And there became some very, you could tell there is some unanimity. I'm a professional word talker. There were a lot of people saying the same stuff about certain topics, and there was a feel for particular programs, two programs in particular, that I found very interesting opinions coalescing around, and we'll get to those. But to start with Michigan, I thought it was interesting, but Nathan, you didn't vote for Michigan. Why did you vote for Nebraska? So to me, the reason I didn't vote for Michigan is I know that Michigan is not living up to its loftiest standards that the media and others sometimes put on them coming into a season. And I was the one who just last week was arguing that Michigan needs to kind of pick up the pace a little bit and kick it into gear and get up to where it can challenge Ohio State more and why that might be better, in my opinion, for the Big Ten, for college football in general, to have that rivalry be a little bit more equal. Although, as you pointed out, it wasn't that long ago that it was still more equal. Ohio State just keeps winning. But Michigan is still consistently a top, what, 15, 20 at worst program? Like, I feel like every year in and year out, they're in not only the top 25, but maybe the top half of the top 25. I mean, they're still in that conversation on a pretty regular basis. Nebraska is arguably, and I will argue it right now, today as we stand, Nebraska, I would rank sixth in the Big Ten West. Nebraska's not even in the top half of the West. They're not even really probably, I mean, in, they're in the top half of, of college football because they're a power five conference and they would beat some of these other teams. But uh, this is a school that thinks of itself, I, and I think it's still collectively thought of as 
a bit of a blue blood. You got multiple national championships over time. You've got this great rabid fan base in Lincoln. You've got the sellout streak. You've got the, the black shirts, just all these things going for Nebraska, except they cannot win games. Three straight losing seasons for the last five years. This is a program that has really just fallen off into mediocrity at best. And they're not really a factor right now in the Big Ten. I think people thought Nebraska was going to come in and be a factor in the Big Ten. Maybe not come in and dominate, but be some kind of a factor. And right now, they're really kind of an afterthought, in my opinion, in the Big Ten. I agree with you. Nebraska would kill to be Michigan. And the thing that I don't know, and, and, and maybe we need to ask Michigan fans this, I don't know that Michigan fans are, like, discouraged week to week, right? They're discouraged on the last Saturday in November. But, like, most of the time, I wouldn't you feel pretty good? Like, I think it's fun to be a Michigan fan 11 weeks out of 12. They finished in the in the top 25 and top 20 even of the AP poll for the last five years. Nebraska hasn't finished in the top 25 of the AP poll in eight years. And the other thing, Nathan, Nebraska's peak was higher than Michigan's peak. Because the thing that people might forget is that Michigan really was never really like a consistent national title contender. Right. Nebraska was arguably the best program in college football. They won back-to-back national titles, and I don't mean this facetiously, only 25 years ago. And I know Michigan won its national title in 1997, but even with Bo, Bo didn't win a national title. Tom Osborne was pumping out national titles left and right. So I would argue that Nebraska is by far more discouraging for fans because they were better than Michigan at their best, and they're much worse on a Saturday-to-Saturday basis right now than Michigan at their worst. And again, if you told Nebraska fans, you know what, here's what your next five years are going to be, 10-3, and 10-3, and 8-5, and 10-3, and 9-4, they would get down on their knees and say, sign me up. And that's what Michigan fans are supposed to be discouraged about. Obviously, all the Michigan votes are about the Ohio State rivalry. But I don't know that Michigan fans, the other weeks of the year when they're beating Michigan, you know, Michigan State's beating them a couple times too. But when they're beating Indiana and Maryland and they beat Penn State and they beat Wisconsin, you know, are Michigan fans like depressed? I don't know. They're, they're, and they're, they're up from where they were at their low threshold during the Rich Rod years when they were going three and nine. Then you would be discouraged. But they've overcome that. So I, I just think Nebraska to me was almost the obvious answer. I think you could make if so if not for Nebraska pulling out a 42-38 win in Champaign last year how would we be looking at Nebraska I mean you could argue that they're last in the Big 10 West right now right I mean I you, so uh, people obviously would put them behind Wisconsin Iowa Northwestern and I Minnesota right now because of where Minnesota has jumped to here in the last just last season, I guess, but where we also see them going with P.J. Fleck. Purdue has had a winning season more recently in Nebraska. They've won a bowl game more recently than Nebraska, and they've won two straight against Nebraska, including a 42-28 win in Lincoln in 2018. So Purdue is ahead of Nebraska right now. There probably aren't that many times in the history of college football that you would say that, but I would put Purdue on a higher level than Nebraska. So 
that's what's ahead of Scott Frost right now is not, you know, we saw those, those t-shirts, like what would they say national championship or something about Scott Frost and national championship. You saw one in Lincoln. I know yeah. last year and I'm like national championship. How about, how about going to a bowl game? How about finishing third in the big 10 West? I mean, um, the expectations of that fan base are so wildly skewed with what seems to be in front of this team. Now, maybe they'll prove, maybe this will be the breakthrough and they'll, they'll, they'll prove me wrong. But I, I just see this as being just another big 10 team right now. And, and the other thing too, and, and I don't think and we're going to get into some texture because they're really good texture comments. We're going to read some of them for all the teams that got votes. I don't know that anybody brought this up, but the other thing is like Nebraska got like ripped out of its history. And plop, plopped into this new place that it, it's reasonable and it makes sense. And I think maybe Nebraska fans, I'm sure there were some Nebraska fans who were like heartsick over losing the Oklahoma rivalry and the Colorado rivalry and the Texas rivalry and the glory days of Nebraska. Um, and you go somewhere new and it's like, okay, I don't really want to go, but I guess this will be cool. And like it hasn't worked out. But you can't even hang your hat. It's like, oh, you know, we make fun of Nebraska when it's like, oh, they're running like the Nebraska-Oklahoma game on the Big Ten Network. And it's like, you're not really part of this. So that's part of it, too. It's like you went – it's like you're the kid that moved. And it's like you were excited to move, and then you moved, and it's, it stinks there. So, like, I, I, it's just – I just think Nebraska I, – I would think Nebraska fans – and they had, they had hope, and then it didn't, it didn't exactly work out yet. From the 937, and a couple people like looked at Nebraska and Michigan in the same way. From the 937, I thought this was good. I have a tie for this answer because I believe both of these fan bases have a lot of reason to be beyond frustrated. I'll start with Michigan. Hindsight is always 2020, but the Harbaugh hiring seemed like a grand slam when it happened. Um, former QB at the school, all this stuff, but they haven't beaten the Buckeyes, much less made it to Indy or made the playoff. I think the media propping up Michigan year after year. Um, Makes it even worse. They had a horrible stretch under Rich Rod, and Harbaugh was supposed to be the savior. Yet here we are. The other fan base that I believe have to be beyond frustrated is Nebraska. It's the same with Scott Frost. It's very, it's a very good point. Both these schools thought they were going to be saved by former quarterbacks coming back to save them as head coaches, and it hasn't happened from the five-five-nine. Either Nebraska or Michigan. Both teams hired coaches that were supposed to elevate their programs to national prominence. Harbaugh has made Michigan a top 25 team, so I'll give him that. However, if you told Michigan fans five years ago that entering year six, Harbaugh would have never made a Big Ten championship game, they would have laughed. I also picked Nebraska because Frost has disappointed so far, and they've had 14 players leave the program this offseason. He had huge expectations coming in, and they might be staring at another sub-500 season in the face We'll see. There are some definite similarities between what Nebraska and Michigan are facing, right? I do. I do see some similarities. However, I think I still see, again, Michigan just has not fallen down and wallowed in this mediocrity the way Nebraska is. I still feel like Michigan is nationally relevant. They're just not getting up there and winning the one game a lot of times that would make them ultimately national relevant. and. I also still just see maybe a greater potential for them to get back to that stage than Nebraska. I, I don't, maybe Nebraska had its moment and what we think of as Nebraska is something that's not really going to be achievable in the future. I have and, much more question about that than I do about Michigan. 
And that would weigh on your mind as a fan, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it make you feel discouraged? Not only like, man, this season stinks, but like, is it possible we never again will be what we once were? And what we once were, were the kings of college football. That is really discouraging. I mean, you could go, you know, one generation removed from winning three national championships in four years or whatever it was. And now to where, again, you might be the sixth best team in the Big Ten West right now, which is, by the way, not the half of the Big Ten that you want to only be sixth in. Right. You can make an excuse on the east side. On the west side, you don't have those excuses. The, You're in the bottom no, half of a conference, of a new conference that you even wonder if you want to be in. I, I just think there's a lot there for Nebraska. From the 614, hard not to say Rutgers, which we'll get into, but I'll say Nebraska, proud history, but hasn't been relevant at all in a decade of Big Ten play. From the 216, Nebraska, so much hype with Scott Frost, um, yet Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, and even Purdue seem to have brighter futures, as you pointed out, Nathan. From the 816, Nebraska, great history, but in today's college football landscape, they will struggle to get enough top-tier recruits to be relevant on the national stage. And from the 330, Nebraska, they have a rich history, but they were 5-7 and seven in the year they thought they were going to turn it around. Now they have three hard non-conference games this year and Oklahoma next year, and I can't see Scott Frost being the head coach after 2021 due to the schedules the next two years. So, like, think about that again. Like, Scott Frost is the savior. Won a fake national title with Central Florida. Comes out of that Oregon offense. Is a is a star, a star player at Nebraska. They finally got him after dinking around with Mike Riley, which was a bad hire. And it's the realization of like, this is the best hire Nebraska could make. And if he can't get it done, like, is anybody? ever going to get it done that is like the definition of discouraging to me all right let's get into some michigan reasons and see what we think of them from the 415 michigan they have such grandiose thoughts about their place in college football history and will tell anyone who listens but they're a facade and a sham of a real program it's like kodak in the years following digital photos your time is done I think it's a very interesting thing because that to me is what would really lead to discouragement is the idea of we used to be something and we'll never be that again. But again, I think as we're saying, Nathan, you and I think that applies more to Nebraska than Michigan. So it's like they're saying that you remember what Hardy's used to be. Have we already, is that, we're doing this out of order. Have we already done that? Is that part on the first that part? That part of the was already on. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> the roast beef sandwiches and the fried chicken, but really you show up to Hardy's and all they have for you is another hamburger. Someone also, I mean, I think someone wanted, I didn't pick it for a question this week. Someone wanted you to compare every Ohio State assistant coach to an ice cream flavor, but I'm also not so sure you couldn't, you shouldn't compare every Big Ten football program to a fast food restaurant. I think that might be on your docket coming up. Um, From the 614, Michigan, watch the press conference after Ohio State beat Michigan and when Minnesota lost to Wisconsin, which coach would you rather have? And that's sort of leaning into some of the, will PJ Fleck one day be the Michigan coach stuff that we've talked about before from the four, four Oh Michigan with the state of the Ohio state program and a likely revitalized Michigan state, Michigan should be concerned with its place in the big 10 East, let alone nationally from the five, one, three, is this a trick to talk about Michigan again? That's the answer, right? Nearly every other program has reason for optimism or close to it. 
and then they run through and you can, this is very you can make this case actually northwestern certainly not discouraged iowa maybe for reasons because they have some issues with the strength coach right now uh, but iowa knows who they are right yeah and that's a very recent right thing i don't that's not a ongoing well it might be a thing, and we're not going to talk about that on this issue. We'll get into at some point some of the schools that are dealing with some things right now. But behind it, it's a real thing that players have been dealing with apparently behind the scenes, but not something that I think permeates the fan base. Right, but like Iowa fans have felt pretty good about Iowa recently. Minnesota, there's optimism. This person says Nebraska, they're still optimistic with Frost. 2020 is a huge year, though. Wisconsin, you can make an argument. So again, they're running through. There are actually a lot of programs, and I sort of agree with it, and some other people said it. There are a lot of Big Ten programs that maybe, even if they're down, might have reason to be feeling optimistic about the future right now, whereas Michigan, again, I think one of the most discouraging things is feeling like you're stuck, right? That you're stuck at your place and you're never going to get better or you're never going to get back to what you were. From the 248, Michigan. Harbaugh was supposed to be their savior, their Urban Meyer. I live in Metro Detroit, and they were talking national titles. From the 513, Michigan, that's not even hard. That program has underperformed for 20 years. Yes, Jim Harbaugh has won nine or 10 games a year, but I guarantee if you ask that fan base, they'd say it isn't enough. Side note, my boss is a big Michigan fan, and it's been so fun the last two years, I almost got fired a few times. (laughs) <laughs> I guess if you are taunting your Michigan fan boss to the extent that you almost got fired, I guess that is uh, a good couple of years. Um, I want to go through a couple of the points that people made about, you know, how a lot of teams are looking at things from the six three zero. This was really good. Wow, what a good question! Again, shout out to the texter who asked it. Rutgers has Shiano again, looking up. Illinois had the big win against Wisconsin last year. Maybe some momentum, looking up. Maryland, not great, but the new coach is recruiting well, looking up. Michigan State, new coach that can recruit Ohio, looking up. Purdue, they were hurt by injuries last year, but they're still excited about Jeff Brom, looking up. Indiana, getting better with Tom Allen, looking up. I mean, the answer is Michigan. They are just so far of where they want to be. That's from 87 Adams in the 630. I, I agree with a lot of that, that you can find optimism in a lot of places. I agree with a lot of that, except the part about Michigan being so far from where it wants to be. And I again, guess I, I just, depends how, like we could talk about the Ohio State rivalry, and I don't have the stats in front of me. We know they haven't done well in big games. We know they haven't won a lot of right. games against ranked teams and the games that matter the most. So, right. It, it, it's a constant back and forth, and we've talked about it again, as I've said. We talk about the same stuff, just in different frameworks. The whole thing with Michigan is 10 wins good or is 10 wins against the teams you're supposed to beat and you almost never win a game that matters. Is that devastatingly inherently frustrating? I guess you could look at it either way. Yeah. And, and I also think, I think Michigan fans, we've heard from some of them or heard from them through either on social media or heard from some things our texters have said from the ones who live up there. I almost wonder if they have some a, a kind of a realistic viewpoint of where they are right now compared to where Ohio State is right now, and that there's a peak happening at Ohio State. We don't know how long that's going to last. But like you said, it wasn't that long in the past that these teams were, were one and two, and, and, and you were picking Michigan to win some of those games going into the final week, and so were other prognosticators. I mean, it's this idea that Michigan has fallen down anywhere near the level that a program like Nebraska is, for instance, 
it's just nonsense. I mean, they, they are still a threat, I think, on an annual basis to Ohio State. We thought that last year going into the season. I'm, I can't discount them as a team that could plausibly beat Ohio State this year. I know that they're on different – I do believe they're on different tiers, but they have not fallen off of, of being relevant on a national scale the way that a team like Nebraska has. I would say um, I think my first vote is Nebraska. My second vote would be Rutgers. Um, and even though Shiana was there, and again, that's as optimistic as they can be, the idea of like Rutgers went to this new conference. Oh, my God, what have we done? Why did we come here? We're never going to – like uh, that would seem discouraging to me possibly. That almost like, again, it's the added thing for Rutgers and Nebraska of like, hey, we're in this new conference and it is not going well. Um, those would be my first two votes. I get, I get what people are saying with Michigan, but I think Michigan would have been my third place vote on this. I want to shout out this answer that I love from the 541. Why would I know anything about crappy Big Ten teams? She's like, okay. I mean, like, <laughs> like, point taken. Hey, Ohio State fans, who's the was, saddest was, about sucking the most? It's like, I don't know and I don't care. Was this sent from Doug Maurice the 15th in the future? Yeah. Like, why? Yeah, it might be. Um, Call back to market. Why? And yeah, and I don't, I can't name any players on other teams and I don't care why their fans are discouraged. All right. I want to run through, we want to get into the idea of Ohio state maybe being discouraged, but I want to run through a couple other teams first. Rutgers got six votes from the nine one nine discouraged. How can you get lower than Rutgers? Wrong school name should be university of New Jersey. Wimpy mascot. Good players leave early to, to another team on the way to the NFL. I get that. I think, I think Rutgers is a very, very reasonable vote. Um, somebody, Michigan state also got six votes from the 404 Michigan state. The cupboard is absolutely bare and they lost a top tier coach. Um, FYI, the Michigan state preview as we work through the schedule will be the Thursday pod. I just talked with Matt Wenzel, the M live Michigan state writer, and it does. He seems to think there's some optimism, um, with Mel Tucker and actually like Mark D'Antonio was seven and six the last two years. And. At his peak, Mark D'Antonio was arguably the best coach in Michigan State history, but maybe he was getting a little stale. So I think it's interesting. Yes, Michigan State, I think, is not going to be very good this year, but I think they're actually – Mel Tucker might be a reason um, for people to be optimistic a, real, a, a little bit. This one I thought was interesting. Wisconsin got three votes from the 601. I think Wisconsin, they have done everything but win the game that matters. If I were a Badger fan, I would think we are never going to take the next step. Nathan, do you do you get that as a discouragement argument? I, I, I know I, I guess I draw a line between frustration and discouragement. I think I would be frustrated if I was a Wisconsin fan that maybe winning the Big Ten West is your ceiling right now, because whoever comes out of the East is just going to be more talented, more sophisticated, whatever, and you're not going to be able to break through and beat either Ohio State. Penn State, Michigan, if they get things going, whoever. So I think that would be frustrating, but you're still winning your division every year. You're still going to a significant bowl game. You're going to get to go to Rose Bowls and stuff once in a while in that scenario. That that still to me is – it's hard to be discouraged about that. That to me is more frustrating. We may be splitting hairs. I know we do that a lot, but that, that's how I see it. I do, The discouragement to me is like do you not enjoy your fall? Do you not right. enjoy your fall Saturdays? During the week, are you like, oh, we're going to lose again? Oh, I'm going to be disappointed again. And then, and then on Saturday and Sunday, like, are you down because your team lost? Wisconsin fans are having a great freaking time, man. I mean, they I used to cover a lot. 
I, I used to cover a program that was discouraged. The fan base was discouraged. They were winning max three games a year. People weren't coming. You listen to the coaches call in show each week. People weren't calling in because they just didn't care. Like it, that's almost beyond discouraged, right? That's where you get into just complacency and disinterest, um, indifference. So I guess there's something beyond discouragement in some ways, but that's how I think that that's where I want. That's what I think of when I think of discouragement. It's like you're on your way to where do people even care? Do people even pay attention and show up? Uh, Illinois actually got it out of order. Illinois got five votes. So it was Michigan first, Nebraska second, Rutgers and Michigan State tied for third. Illinois was fifth with five votes on Illinois from the 3-3-0. Illinois should be the most discouraged. Illinois is the top school in the state and are centrally located in the Midwest. They can recruit their populated home state, recruit Ohio and Pennsylvania, and reach into other regions. In the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, Illinois was very competitive and a game that always scared me when Ohio State played them. They are in the weaker side of the Big Ten and should be much better than they are. Illinois should be able to represent the Big Ten West every four to six years in Indianapolis, and they aren't close to reaching that threshold. Uh, that, I think, is a good argument because I think yeah. maybe you believe in Lovey, but that's a good argument. I grew up in central Illinois. I grew up following Illinois football. My uh, dad and brother were season ticket holders until recently, so uh, I, I know that fan base a little bit i've always thought that the fan base on the basketball side was the one that was maybe a little bit more unrealistic in its expectations and i think on the football side maybe they're not unrealistic enough does that mean like maybe they i I don't maybe they should demand more because you just have like i think maybe they say i mean you've got a good recruiting base there between chicago and st louis and even indianapolis is where a place you could go over it's only two hours away you can get and it's three big population centers that are close and have turned out good athletes before. Um, there's just so many potential advantages. You're the flagship school of your state in a way that there's other Big Ten schools that, that don't have that um, in in name only or or otherwise. So the, I've always felt like Illinois is kind of leaving some points on the field in terms of, especially in terms of football. Like they'll they'll pop up every once in a while, but it's just been so long since they've been able to consistently win, and with the history of that place. And some of the other advantages that they should have going for them, I, I don't really understand it. I thought that, you know, Josh Whitman came in as a new AD and had some interesting ideas and was going to shake things up. You know, he, he, he made a bold gesture and went and got Lovey. And so far, I don't think you'd call that a success, going to one bowl game after four years and going six and seven. So they, they've still got a, a, a ways to go before they can start talking about being on the upswing again. I mean, you look, it's like Wisconsin is good and Iowa's good. Like, why isn't Illinois good? Like, the idea that, yeah. like, Wisconsin and Iowa yeah. just are good every year and Illinois is terrible, there's nothing inherent in why that should be that case. I understand uh, why Rutgers isn't good every year in the Big Ten. I even kind of understand why it's tough for a school like Purdue maybe to break through. I don't understand it with Illinois. There's just so much going for them that it seems like they're not capitalizing on. It's another version of what I talked about in the ACC pod with Virginia. It seems like a place that would have a lot going for it but isn't utilizing it. Uh, Penn State got two votes. And again, we don't need to go into this because it's sort of the same idea as like Wisconsin from the 361, from the 361 area code, Penn State. Close losses to Ohio State stunted their momentum in recruiting. They are now struggling to attract elite talent, at least this year. Also, the whiteout game may not have a full stadium, which helps Ohio State this year. Plus, Ohio State has fields who used to be committed to Penn State. Again, all those things are true. But in comparison, again, there are... Almost any program in the Big Ten other than Ohio State would kill to be Penn State. You know who would kill to be Penn State? 
Michigan. Yeah. So, like, I understand what that texture is saying. I just think a lot of schools would be ahead of that. Um, Indiana only got one vote from the 706. Indiana, a basketball school, doesn't care about football. Something Football is something to get to until the basketball season starts. Then the basketball team is as bad as the football team. That's discouraging. If we want to talk about basketball fans being discouraged, I think that's a great point. Um, but actually, you know, Indiana football is actually pretty decent lately. And then Minnesota got one vote for this reason from the 512. Most discouraged about their team, Minnesota, because P.J. Fleck is gone after this season. Um, we're going to get into a lot of Minnesota next. But before we do, I want to finish on this idea of an Ohio State being discouraged. Three votes for Ohio State from the 216. And this actually isn't a vote for Ohio State. Michigan, without a doubt, but then honestly, I think Ohio State should be second just because we should have had at least one more title in the last seven years, and while we have a tremendously high standard, we should live up to it. From the 937, in terms of disappointment, the case could be made that in the last half decade, with the talent on the field and the coaching strength, Ohio State's fan base could be disappointed. The Iowa and Purdue losses cost pretty solid teams a shot, not moving towards the playoff era style offense sooner, meaning like sort of the urban run, run first quarterback. That held them back a bit. But this is also operating under the assumption of a national championship or bust mentality. And as much as I have that mentality personally, it isn't realistic. I'd actually say Nebraska. Um, and then the last one, our friend Seth Shaner said, ask Ari and he'll tell you it's Ohio State fans. The Buckeyes should have four or five titles since 2014, according to talent. Um, I know Bill and Ari did a podcast about whether Ohio State underachieved. And again, but that idea, Nathan, what everybody's saying is with the talent Ohio State has had, the way they recruited, should they have more national titles recently? Should they have done more in the playoff era? They have not won a playoff game since winning the first national championship of the playoff era. Do you understand that as some kind – again, no one's going to argue they would be first on this list. Do you understand some kind of discouraged definition in that framework? No, I would still, again, draw the line between frustration and being discouraged. I don't think anybody is just tearing up their tickets because Ohio State got to the semifinals last year and lost a close game to a really good Clemson team. Or they, I, I guess maybe that person exists out there, but – uh, I can't get there in my head. I, I would think you'd be frustrated. I think you'd say, oh, you know, Ohio State really, you know, even though you want to contend for a national championship, there's only a certain number of years where you really have that opportunity. And boy, did we maybe miss a shot there. That's That to me is frustration. That's not just like, well, let's just burn the whole thing down and why do we even bother? That's, you know, discouragement to me is Nebraska fans <laughs> look back at last year and seeing that they were ranked like 24th in the country before the year and being like, well, what were those people thinking? We, we were nothing even in the ballpark of that. That's, to me, discouragement. Uh, Follow-up question from Seth that I, that I wanted to get to quickly. Rapid-fire question. I can't place Nathan's accent. I know he's from Illinois, but it's definitely not Chicago, which sounds somewhat like a, like, like a Cleveland or Michigan accent. But when he's the host and says, Buckeye talk, his pronunciation of talk is out there. I suppose it's technically correct since I most often say it more like talk, T-O-C-K, but his pronunciation is an earworm for me now. 
Do you want to try to explain your accent, Nathan? Or do you feel like you don't have one? No, that's a fantastic question. I think we all – well, accents are relative, right? Like, I mean, there's yes. people who if you go – if we go to certain places like on the East Coast or up North, they think that we talk like really fast or whatever because to us it's almost like – to them it's almost like a Southern drawl. Um, so I have – I'm like half hillbilly, half um, like small-town Illinois <laughs> like trash i guess like i don't know how you would say it but like my mom's from kentucky my dad grew up in this little town of 300 people in central illinois so i have a very rural background but then i went to college in chicago and spent five years in chicago and then a long time in lafayette indiana so another college town so i don't know i think it's it's a mixture of all those things right like i'm sure that my it's your your, your speech patterns and things develop over time and I think I'm just a little bit of all that kind of melding into what you're hearing now. You just said talk in the middle of that explanation. And then when you said talk, I was like, oh, my God, there it is. So now it's an earworm for me, too. I had never noticed anything before, but thanks a lot, Shaner Bomb. Um, all right. Here's the next question. Great, 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 great question that I can't find now. Here it is. It's the Big Ten questions. From. The 614, simple question. Who will be the next Big Ten team to beat Ohio State? Nathan, before we get your answer, who do you think won the vote? Among our texters, an overwhelming favorite. 39 votes, next team got nine. Oof. Penn State. I said a couple things crystallized in the course of this podcast. And one of the things that crystallized is the respect that Ohio State fans have for Penn State. No doubt about it. Penn State was the answer for people. Like Penn people like, well, who else would you say? And they've only gotten them once in the James Franklin era, but they had two or three others they easily could have gotten. And again, I said it earlier, Michigan would kill to be Penn State. How awesome would it be if, Ohio State fans, the kind of respect they showed for Penn State in these answers, if all those answers were about Michigan, what kind of place the rivalry would be in. And again, as we've talked before, it doesn't have to be 8-8 eight and eight over the last 16 years. Penn State's only beaten Ohio State once under James Franklin. But people respect them. They fear them. They worry about going there. They worry about the whiteout. They think that that, you know, obviously there's still a talent gap in recruiting, but they recruit pretty well. There are multiple things that people explain in respecting Penn State. And I was sort of blown away at how overwhelming this was, although there's another answer we're going to get into. The second team is fantastically interesting to me. But from the 3-3-0, Penn State. The talent gap is closer than any other Big Ten team. Happy Valley is a nightmare. And James Franklin gets his team up for the Ohio State game. Simple, true, and you respect it. From the 8-1-3, I think it's got to be Penn State. But with the uncertainty of what this season will look like, my reason might not be valid. Happy Valley is just a hard place to play, and James Franklin seems to get his team ready for Ohio State. On a cold night in October, I can see them getting the best of the Buckeyes. Even this year, again, people are talking about if you can't have stand, uh, fans in the stands or limited fans, that whiteout might be the most affected game of the season. The Penn State whiteout against Ohio State. 
that might be the greatest show of, of fandom and home field advantage in the conference. And that would be a problem if they can't do it. But I still think Penn State's a really good answer there. From the 415, Penn State, they're good. And the games have been close. One time they'll break through. Are you surprised, Nathan, it's so overwhelming that Penn State got 39 votes and the second place team got nine? Not really, because I think people do respect. They've seen Penn State play Ohio State close here these last few years in a way that obviously Michigan hasn't. Even though Michigan's had some good seasons these last couple of years, they get on the same field as Ohio State and everything goes splat. Penn State's at least made Ohio State work for it. Really challenged them, even in Ohio Stadium. And now Penn State or Ohio State has to go to Penn State at least every other year. So that those those combination of factors, it makes sense to me that they still see that as like the most present threat at all times. That Ohio State's the team, even from the East right now, until Michigan shows maybe that it is a step up, that Penn State's the one that you worry about year in and year out. Because I don't think they worry that much about when they eventually get Wisconsin or whoever on a neutral field in the Big Ten championship game. I think they still like Ohio State's chances of its athleticism, its speed, stepping up to match whoever it is that they're facing there. Uh, I will tell you the teams that finished third and fourth in the voting now. Michigan got eight votes. Wisconsin got six votes. And I want to read this from the 5-1-3. For this season, it's obviously Penn State. That's the, the team most likely to beat them. But over the next couple of years, excluding Penn State, it has to be Michigan and Wisconsin. J.J. McCarthy is the real deal. He's, Penn, he's Michigan's top 50 national recruit at quarterback in the class of 2021. J.J. McCarthy is the real deal, and Michigan will always have a fighting chance as long as he's at quarterback. For Wisconsin, Graham Mertz is probably the most talented quarterback since Russell Wilson. Anytime you have a highly rated quarterback, you have a puncher's chance. Did you like my Doug quote from the Dwayne Haskins era? Um, Graham Mertz, again, Jack Cohn is the is coming back as the starter at, at Wisconsin. Graham Mertz uh, is in year two at Wisconsin. We wonder, will he beat Jack Cohn out? But that's a guy, Ohio State was interested in him. That idea, Nathan, I like the idea of searching out, are there possible elite quarterbacks on the horizon for an answer like this? Yeah, I agree with that because I think regardless of what Michigan has done these last couple of years, and I think we have reason to question what whether Harbaugh is now capable of producing that kind of quarterback because he struggled to do that here in these first few years of Michigan. But that still seems to me like a a place that could eventually be that, that he could figure that out, that he, he may even be on the way now between what they're recruiting and, and what they have with McCaffrey and, and, and Milton waiting to go into 2020. So that, that is still a, a legitimate reason to think that that's the, the one place that I think could really step up and maybe challenge him with elite quarterbacks on, a, on an annual basis. Uh, in terms of people thinking Wisconsin could be the team to beat him next from the 989, I think this one might be an easy answer. I feel like Wisconsin is the obvious choice. Um, from the 330, Wisconsin um, is the obvious choice there from the 330, from the 614. Um, 2021 will be the year, and it will be the Wisconsin team with a competent quarterback in Graham Mertz. Wisconsin is one of the bigger threats to Ohio State, and if they can actually get a threat at quarterback for once, I think it could happen. And from the 586, Wisconsin against an undefeated Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship after college football goes to an eight-team playoff and the win doesn't matter. So I don't know like how far down the road, how many straight Big Ten games this person from the 586 
is theorizing Ohio State's going to win. But I do think it's interesting if somehow your answer is in a Big Ten championship game because I actually think it's more likely that Ohio State is more likely to lose a regular season game than the Big Ten championship game because at least to me some minor component of increasing your chances of Ohio State is like them overlooking you in some way. And they're not going to overlook somebody in a, in a conference title game. You know what I mean? So, like, I, right. I even though even, that even in an 18 playoff. So, I guess that's the point, right? They, don't, they wouldn't care about the championship game because they're in the playoff no matter what? Well, but even in an 18 playoff, there's going to be significant, you would think. I mean, we don't know how it would be set up for sure. But you'd think there would be significant um, benefit to winning your conference championship game. It's probably – it could be the difference between you being like a one, two – three seed or being like seven or eight, maybe you have to go on the road in those first rounds to play campus sites or something. Uh, it definitely could affect your matchup who you're getting. I mean, I think there's still going to be a lot on the line for those conference championships. Plus people just like to win championships. People like to win their conference championships. It's not like you're taking the week off. It'd be one thing if you just like mailed it in and sent the JV and didn't care and you still made the playoff. I mean, if you're still going to send everybody, you're still going to try to win that game. I don't see them, whoever it is coming out of the West. I mean, you know, Northwestern a couple years ago. I mean, they're still going to show up and play that game. Uh, Purdue got three votes from the 614. Purdue, I trust your numbers, Doug. And that's because I sent to the texters this week, Ohio State's streaks against every team in the Big Ten. Um, just sort of like I just drew the line yeah. at like when's the big run of them dominating. And I'll just run through it real quick. Purdue is by far Ohio State's toughest opponent in recent years by those numbers. Run through this very quickly. Again, text this is the kind of stuff you get on text. Texters got this a couple days ago, and they got to see it with their eyeballs instead of hearing it with their ears. Ohio State is 32-1 and against Northwestern, 27-1 and against Minnesota, 25-0 and against Indiana, 15-1 and against Michigan, 13-3 and against Michigan State. And everybody remembers, like, those Michigan State losses, but still, Ohio State's beaten Michigan State 13 out of the last 16 times. 13 and 2 against Iowa, 12 and 1 against Illinois, 11 and 1 against Wisconsin, which I have pointed out time and time again. You think Wisconsin is tough. Ohio State's won 11 of the last 12. They're 7 and 1 against Nebraska, 6 and 0 against Maryland, 6 and 0 against Rutgers. So the two teams that by far kind of are the toughest, they're 14 and 4 against Penn State. So the last 18, they've won 14 of 18, but they have won seven of the last eight against Penn State, but that's not very long, so I didn't just include that. So seven and one against Penn State, 14 and four against Penn State. Then Purdue, they are 15 and five against Purdue, so they've won 15 of the last 20, which to win five out of 20 against Ohio State is awesome when you compare to everybody else. In the last nine games, Ohio State is five and four against Purdue in the last nine. Does that blow your ears off, Nathan, when you hear those other stats and it's five and four against Purdue? It, it doesn't only because I covered Purdue and had to write about that, but it's it's bizarre, right? I mean, and it it, it involves what we saw in 2018, but it also involves uh, the game where uh, Ryan Kerrigan as a defensive end for Purdue was kind of single-handedly out there just – uh, terrorizing Ohio State for an afternoon um, and kind of one of his kind of coming out parties on a national stage. So it, it, it is just one of those teams you see it. And I think across sports and I, and, and Purdue for whatever reason is that team that Ohio State just, just struggles with. I don't know that you can really, cause it, it, it it's now it's gone across various coaching um, t- t- tenures at Purdue. You, and it's not like one guy just has 
one coach's number. It's been various coaches going against each other. And uh, so Purdue does come to Ohio Stadium in 2021. That's going to be maybe a sense of foreboding already setting in for the fan base for that one. I don't know. Danny Hope was like D'Antonio Light for Ohio State, former Purdue oh, coach. Oh, very light. And, and let's remember, Ohio State 5-4 and four against Purdue in the last nine. And one of those five wins – is the miracle Kenny Guyton overtime win against Purdue at home mm-hmm. that Ohio State should have lost. And if they would have lost that one, they'd be four and five against Purdue in the last nine. So all but three teams got a vote for next Big Ten team to beat Ohio State. The only three that did not get a vote were Rutgers, who will never beat Ohio State. Iowa, which I was surprised about because – Iowa's on the schedule for this year, and it's a home game, right? We, You guys did Iowa last week as a preview, yeah. but yeah. I don't know. I mean, Ohio, Iowa's played Ohio State tough at Ohio Stadium before. I'm not predicting Ohio State to lose that game, but I thought it was interesting Iowa didn't get a vote, and Northwestern didn't get a vote. Um, so the team that we have not talked about, Indiana got one vote, Michigan State one, Illinois two, Maryland two, Nebraska three, Purdue three. The second-place team – was Minnesota, and the votes coalesced around one game that I now am completely fascinated by. And it did not look like this when the schedule was made. But when you look at it now, Mm -hmm. let's see if I can find an answer that explains it right off the bat. Hold on one second, because people are like started zeroing in on this. From the 614, Minnesota in the season opener of 2021. The Bucks are breaking in a new quarterback and looking ahead to Oregon too much. P.J. Fleck cements a future job offer from Michigan. From the 614, this same person adds, plus I'm going to the Minnesota game and my last two road trips to Western Division road games for 2017 Iowa and 2018 Purdue. Sorry, y'all. Someone, um, someone's sending right now, like, armed officers over to that person's house to prevent them from going on that road trip. From the 678, Minnesota on Thursday, September 2nd, 2021. The Minnesota Golden Gophers upset the defending national champion Ohio State Buckeyes. A first-year starting quarterback on the road at night in Minnesota doesn't seem like a good recipe for success. P.J. Fleck has got some weird magic going on up there, and I think they will feast on a very young team on the road to open the season. Also, I double-checked my pride in not knowing anybody on other teams. Tanner Morgan, the Minnesota quarterback, is a redshirt junior this year. So he's not guaranteed to come back. But it could be that Tanner Morgan is back as a fifth-year senior in 2021 as legitimately maybe one of the five best quarterbacks in college football. And either Kyle McCord, C.J. Stroud, or Jack Miller is making his first start. I had not thought about this at all, Nathan. And we probably don't need to be thinking about 2021. But as we zeroed in on this, this answer fascinates me and particularly the idea of defending national champion Ohio State. It's a Thursday night as the Big Ten has gone to this thing where they want some conference games to open the year. Thursday night at Minnesota to open 2021. The undefeated defending national champs from 2020 go down to Minnesota. What do you think of that? 
It's the game I picked. This is the this is the game I said would be the next team to beat Ohio State, September second, twenty twenty one, at Minnesota. And for all those reasons that we've already pointed out, I, I think even without um, Morgan potentially being there as the starter for Minnesota in that game, you're asking possibly a redshirt freshman or a true freshman for Ohio State to go on the road on a Thursday night against what, even with my hesitations about anointing Minnesota yet should be a really solid team and having them open their career as a starter. I think that's a tough call, but I also think as we talked about before, there may be a more of an exodus of talent from Ohio state between these two off seasons than you first expect when you look at the roster um, just because of if this team achieves who else, who that could mean is, is upwardly mobile and moving on with their careers. So there could be a lot of things that have to get filled in for Ohio state. And they, that's a big challenge for the start of the year to go on the road at Minnesota and then come back home and try to play Oregon. And I don't know if they'd be overlooking Oregon, but it's, it just makes it, I think that much tougher to get yourself in the mindset of, it's not like you're having to prepare for just one big game to start the year. And you have some other like buy games mixed in, um, you can't really turn your attention too far ahead on, on what they have set up for the start of 2021. It is just fascinating to me in a world where everybody is used to the idea that sort of like your first game of the college football season is almost like a preseason game, right? It's often like a Mac team. It's like a, a, a game to break in, but the idea that they're going to have a new quarterback and that new quarterback's first two games are going to be on the road at Minnesota home against Oregon is crazy. Yeah. And when and they played Indiana to open the Big Ten season a couple years ago, and then when they had this when this came out, nobody thought, ah, oh, Minnesota, that's going to be tough because it was like, well, Minnesota stinks. It's like opening with Rutgers, and all of a sudden, PJ Fleck has it going. I am just this like, it's the right answer, right? Of course, there's no right or wrong answer to this question, but it is such a fascinating scenario. And and as, as I said, we're going to have a podcast coming up soon where we like lay down sort of our like our baseline thoughts about Ohio State football. I don't think they're going to lose in 2020. That's where I'm going to be. I'm pretty sure I'm going to pick Ohio State in 2020 to be the undefeated national champion. I think that's where I am. Despite the reservations I have about some of the young defenders and the running game and all that kind of stuff, I just think that's where I am. And I think all of that helps set up something like this. Um, it'd be like the biggest game in Minnesota football history. The biggest since, you know, some kind of thing since 1966 that I don't even know what I'm talking about, but it's just a, it's a, it's a great, and it almost, would it keep PJ Fleck at Minnesota one more year? Would he turn down USC this off season? If they finally fire Clay Helton, would PJ Fleck be like, Oh my God, I have a chance to beat Ohio state. I can't take a job. It's just like, it's just fascinating to think about. Now that is the wrinkle, though, right? Like, if if it's the first year of another head coach, I think that makes it a tougher upset for the Gophers. No, I agree. But it's just – it's a fascinating thing to think about. So, again, Penn State, overwhelming respect for Penn State. Un- believing that Michigan is discouraged and and fascinated with Minnesota's rise. Those are the three things that came out of these three questions. And the last question on this is from the 216 – what mid to lower level team in each power five conference would you like to see become a conference champion or a playoff contender? That's a lot. So I just, I said in the big 10 and one nationally, that's what I asked texters. Give me the big 10 team. That's a mid tier team that you would like to see jump up and be a playoff contender. And then give me a team nationally. 
Um, over two teams got overwhelming responses in the Big Ten. Nathan, would you like to guess who won the votes for the mid-tier Big Ten team they want to see jump up? And again, mid-tier, what do you mean by that? Do you mean where they are right now, where they are historically? People interpreted it differently, but what do you think? I voted for Minnesota, so I'll say Minnesota, one of them. Minnesota got 22 votes. They were first. And I will say – see, mid-tier is, is a floating target a little bit, right? Um, right. Uh, bu- 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 so I'll no, say uh, Nebraska. Nebraska was second. They got 19. And they by far and away, nobody else got more than seven. So part of this is like what you want – Right. It's not just predicting what will happen, but it's what you want. I'll tell you, nationally, North Carolina got the most votes. North Carolina got eight. UCLA got four. Texas A&M got three. Ole Miss and Mississippi State, a lot of people lumped them together because of the fascination with both Lane Kiffin and Mike Leach. Boston College got four votes. Jeff Halfley at Boston College, an interesting vote. And I'll read a text on that from the 740. I guess I would enjoy seeing Illinois make a splash as a playoff contender. Nationally, I would like to see Boston College with Jeff Halfley become a power in the ACC. They play Clemson, Florida State, and Virginia Tech every year. Um, And those historical or current powers have it too easy right now. We just did this whole gigantic ACC podcast, Nathan, and I don't think we brought up Boston College at all. We know that Jeff Halfley did a good job at Ohio State. There does seem to be enthusiasm around Boston College. Do you believe that Boston College has any hope of rising up and being some kind of legitimate, consistent contender in the ACC? Consistent? No. Not unless Clemson were to drop back. Could they be like the? Could they be the Michigan State to Clemson that like Michigan State was to Ohio State? Could Boston College be that to Clemson? Maybe. I think that's that's a reasonable thing to aspire to. Yeah, it's just hard. I mean, the, the Northeast, football in the Northeast is just tough, right? Yeah. And it's like our the recruiting base, are you going to get kids to go there? Um, Halfley's got a lot of enthusiasm. He learned a lot of lessons about recruiting at Ohio State. But I, I also, I can sort of hear your skepticism on that. I'm a little skeptical about it too. Let's talk about the team that finished first in the Big Ten voting. Minnesota. From the 314, I think it'd be great for the Big Ten to have someone out west like that. With the uh, name, image, and likeness down the pipeline, um, Minnesota will be solidified as a contender with their players' marketability with the big city. Bring on Minneapolis versus Columbus. This is uh, JD from Iowa. He says he's a new subscriber and he loves it. He's from Iowa and he went to Ohio State for undergrad. So he is down and hopeful about Michigan as a playoff contender. From the 415, Minnesota, I'm all in on P.J. Fleck revitalizing this program. It would be cool if Minnesota and Wisconsin battled it out every year. And then from the 443, Minnesota, not sure if they even qualify any longer as mid-tier, but it would be interesting to see if P.J. Fleck can row the boat successfully on a national stage. He seems to have what it takes to get his teams to show up on the big stage, similar to what Urban Meyer did at Utah or what Chris Peterson did at Boise. Not saying he's quite on that level, but it would be fun to watch. Um, Do you think 
So one thing is, will P.J. Flex stay? How long will he stay? Well, let's just say that he does, because there's no point in having a giant discussion about whether P.J. Flex is going to leave or not. Let's say they can pay him. Let's say he likes it. Let's say the perfect offer doesn't come along. Maybe he's waiting out Michigan, and he's there for another five years, let's say. Do you think they could do it? Do you think Minnesota could make the playoff in the next five years or become a team that is in that discussion that, like, you know, in the, th- the third playoff committee rankings, we're watching saying, where's Minnesota going to be? And like Minnesota's sixth and Ohio State's third. And oh my gosh, the Big Ten championship's going to be crazy. Could that happen? I think what Mark D'Antonio did at Michigan State is certainly attainable for P.J. Fleck at Minnesota. Why not? But more than that, could it be more than that? Or is Michigan State the right way to like, that's the ceiling? 10 wins, like we just, again, the Michigan State podcast you're going to hear on Thursday, six out of eight years at their peak, they won at least 10 games. They finished in the AP top 25, six out of eight years. They beat Ohio State a couple of those years, made the playoff once. Is that the ceiling for Minnesota? That's a pretty good ceiling, but is that the ceiling? That's what I kind of perceive to be the ceiling, just because I don't know how many years they'll... I don't expect them to be able to consistently beat Ohio State head-to-head for a conference championship, and I think they're in a four-team scenario, assuming that's what we're looking at here, just keeping the current scenario, I, I don't know how many times the Big Ten is going to get two teams in like that. So I, I think it's it's something that's out there for them to reach for, and I think that, that was the team that I picked, by the way, was um, the mid-tier program. I'd like to see rise up and become a playoff contender as a Minnesota just because of the balance it would give to the West. It would be great for the conference if somebody out West really rose up and became a legitimate scare for the Ohio States and Penn States of the world. Um, I just don't, I, I can't envision it being something where the whole thing flips. And now the, there's the, the, the power from the West is now the leading power in the whole conference. Yeah. The thing I wonder is if Minnesota could be Oregon. And USC is USC and USC is down right now. But when USC is rolling, I mean, Oregon's not going to, beat USC on a consistent basis when USC is at its peak. Um, but that's the other division, right? I mean, it's like USC and UCLA are, are in that division. And then, or could they be Washington? You have two examples up there in that division in the PAC 12. Could Minnesota be Washington, right? I don't know. Not that, you know, but they've made the playoff. They make, the, I think they can actually, I think if PJ flex stays for any length of time, and they throw the ball and they aren't trying to be Wisconsin. They aren't trying, like they're just playing the same kind of game that, that all the good teams play and they recruit. I've always said this about Minneapolis. I think it should be a city that you can get kids to want to come there. I think there, you can make it attractive. Um, I actually really truly think it's out there in like a really big way. I think like they are right on the edge of maybe making this happen. And then all they've got to do is get donors to step up and throw money at PJ Fleck and get him to stay. I really think the recruiting is the crucial part of that. Um, their 2020 class on the 24 seven composite was 38th, but that included a kid uh, that I met named Victor Pless who played at Justin Fields high school, uh, Harrison in uh, Kennesaw, Georgia. So they're bringing kids up out of the South to come play up there. And the 2021 class right now, and we talked before about how those numbers are skewed right now because it's all based on who is kind of a front-loaded class. But the 2021 class is ranked ninth nationally right now. So if that's something that they can build on and have that kind of, you know, start getting consistently like top 20, 25-ish classes, um, 
that's the least the neck that's the bridge to it right I mean they're gonna have to do better than that to start being a playoff contender on a consistent basis but that's the next step up and it seems like it's something that is attainable for him I really think it can happen that's my pick as well I think it would be fascinating I just think they're situated in a different way you look at Nebraska and you think man it's going to be hard maybe to get kids in this day and age to go there I think you can get kids to go to Minnesota Um, they're not trying to play a specific style like Wisconsin that limits you. Iowa plays a specific style that limits you. Northwestern just has some different challenges as a private school that, that Minnesota just is like, for lack of a better word to me, is like Minnesota's like the most normal program in the West. And, and Illinois should be too. And we already covered that, but they're not right now. Minnesota is certainly closer to it. I just think there's a lot of things in place. Like Minnesota could just be like a good regular top 20 team that recruits pretty well to a big city and has good players and has like a cool stadium. And like their, I don't know all everything about their facilities, but like it just really makes sense to me. So I think, I think it would be fun to see it. And I, you know, I just, I like new things. It's like Iowa's been Iowa, Wisconsin's been Wisconsin, Minnesota would be new. Um, And I think it would be fun. So again, some of these national things, I think it'd be fun for national schools to pop up. Right. People said like Oklahoma State, Arizona State, West Virginia, I thought was a good one from the 3-3-0. West Virginia, great fans would be fun to see them make a run. Wouldn't it be fun to have like, a you know, a team right next door to Ohio that's like making waves nationally? That'd be pretty cool. Um, I just think in general, Nathan, and then we'll leave. I'd like to see some new faces. And it's one of those things like Ohio State fans love it that the same team seem to make the playoff every year because Ohio State's one of them. Ohio State's constantly in the mix, and we've gone over and over and over again. The team's at the top tier. I'd like to see some people jump up a little bit, and it's a little more interesting to me when it's not like, well, we know that like Alabama and Clemson are making the playoff, and probably either Ohio State or Oklahoma are, and then who else might make it? I'd like a little more variety, which is why I like topics like this, I don't know. We can get into that later in a different podcast, whether we think it'll happen, but would you like to see him mix it up a little bit? I would love to see things get mixed up a little bit. I'm a big fan of chaos. You actually kind of got on me last week for picking such a boring team to put on Ohio State schedule in Stanford. Um, my answer for this was Cincinnati. Like, let's go completely off the screen and pick somebody, get a group of five school, have one of these group of five schools finally break through the real or imagined glass ceiling that there is as far as having respect and achievement relative to getting into a playoff scenario and and kind of consistently being someone that threatens that it's going to be tough because they'd have to get a non-conference schedule at least one game a year that gave them some real uh, credentials but I think the rest of these conferences some of these group of five conferences are getting enough as we talked about yesterday the AAC relative to the ACC I mean which school if you're not Clemson can you potentially put together a better schedule through um, that, that? I think that would be a lot of fun. And it would put some pressure on Ohio state's Midwestern dominance. You'd have, um, you know, Luke fickle kind of making his name the same way someone like Brad Stevens did go to someplace. I think it's boring when like these up and coming coaches then just make the jump and go off and take some school that should be better than it is and just make them that good. Well, why not take a school that's never been like nationally great and make it nationally great. Like do be do what Brad Stevens did at Butler. Like get get him to a Final Four, get him to a championship game. That's what I consider like exciting as just an observer of sports. Luke Fickle in Cincinnati did get at least one vote on that list. Uh, a wide variety of teams. I just think I'm up for something new. 
right? I'm up for, and here's the thing, right? People love underdogs in the NCAA tournament. And then you reach a point where like it's the, the elite eight and the underdog gets his doors blown off. And it's like, well, that wasn't that fun. Like it wasn't, remember when Washington and Michigan state made the playoff that year in 2015 and they both lost like 50 to nothing. That wasn't that fun. It turned out. Right. So like, I guess I'm not pining for that, but like, I thought it was interesting to have LSU in there like last year instead of Alabama again. Right. You know, it would be interesting for Arizona state to all of a sudden be good or Oklahoma state to rise to that level. Those are some teams that were mentioned. I just would like to see maybe something like that. I'm not as enamored with Mike Leach as some people. I am, I'm a little overloaded on Mike Leach, so I don't really care that much if Mississippi State makes it. But um, maybe we'll see it down the road. But again, the more new teams you add to the mix, then you take teams like Ohio State out of it. And I don't think anybody uh, who's an Ohio State fan wants that. All right. That podcast went a lot of different directions. We hope you enjoyed all of it. Thursday will be our Michigan State preview as we continue to work our way through the schedule. And then Nathan and I will be back on Friday talking about some more stuff. Matt Wenzel of MLive.com will join me on Thursday. So for now, if you want to join the text and get involved, 614-350-3315. We could use some new reviews at Apple Podcasts. If you want to drop some of those there, make sure you continue to read us at cleveland.com. Slash OSU. We might be doing a Zoom event that texters are going to be, it'll be only for texters where you guys are on a Zoom call with us and can talk to us directly um, and and have face-to-face contact. So that's kind of some of the new fancy stuff that we're going to start doing with Texture. So if you never tried, um, that would be a great time to do it. But for now, um, many thanks to Gene Smith for joining us for that interesting discussion on behalf of Nathan Baird. Again, Stephen Means will be back next week. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk.